You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to another special best of episode of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and this is episode, uh, Fran, what episode is it? Uh, 169? I think it's yeah, 169. Think it's 169. 169. I'm realizing I didn't say what 167 on the, la- on the last best of. Uh, we're it's better okay. late than ever. Yeah. <laughs> this is the time warp. We're in the time warp. I am. Um, I'm back from vacation, but you're. Point, I'll be back from vacation too, but I wouldn't have gotten back. I think I'm getting back today. Okay. Is it August 4th? Did, I think so. Did, think did you have a good 4th. vacation? I would assume so. I hope so. I, the first time really, uh, well, we're bringing our son for eight days to a cabin in Maine. Oh, all right. And um, this is a place I used to go all the time as a kid, but he's three years old and has limited time in boats. Um, he's been on a boat, but limited time. And uh, it's like dock front, so... He's going to have be spending a lot of time in a life jacket. I'm assuming he's going to love it, but there's a chance he's going to not. And is, is this so going to we'll be see. the longest drive that he's been on? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think we've the furthest we've driven is probably five hours with right. him already. Although we're talking about taking another trip six hours, but by then we'll have this one under the belt. What is this, this is, one? Um, well, that depends, friend. All right. It depends on how often you stop, <laughs> and, uh, and it depends on who's behind the wheel. <laughs> when I was a kid, we'd go with my – like my dad yes. would drive. And my dad um, – would like definitely the speed limit was the limit yeah. it was you do not go if the speed limit's 65 you're doing 64 63 wow. and um which made it seem so much longer it was like it would take us 12 hours wow at least right. uh to get through i forget how many miles it is then i drove it myself the one time and i'm like this took me like 10 hours what <laughs> the heck were we doing so long and um but yeah we we i don't know we're kind of we're not like Truck driver built different, but yeah. we're built different. Yes. We're good at getting. We're, if people would assume by our driving habits, we were from the Midwest and we were just <laughs> driving everywhere. Oh yeah, that's eight hours away. Oh yeah, we'll make it there by the <laughs> afternoon. You've encountered Midwestern yeah. people; oh, they yeah. drive everywhere. Yeah, but like we're spoiled because we have like everything so, so many airports yeah. that are so close that we can do fly wherever we want conveniently. But um, yeah, so it would always take a long time driving up there as a kid, and uh, and then when I did, I'm like, this really isn't that that bad it's, it's a 10 hour drive but it's not like it's uh uh i don't know the 10 hour drive is still a 10 hour drive yeah. 11 hour drive when you really add in stops and that kind of stuff awesome. but well, um I- yeah we'll see but i also one of the things i'm planning on doing that i will have done at this point is visiting some um some of the native plant things that are going on in that area oh awesome i met a, a woman who works at the coastal maine botanical garden uh, back at Planorama at the Brooklyn okay. Botanical Garden, uh, however many months ago, and she said to stop there or reach out to her. I have no clue what her name is or anything, so I'm just going to look up their directory and see if I can remember what she looked like and and say, hey, I'm going to be driving by and be there at eight in the morning on Thursday. <laughs> can, I, can I stop in? Um, but the place looks really cool, and they've put a big emphasis on native plants, and uh, and they have these like. They look like, like cedar shingle trolls they've oh, built. They're like really? 12 feet tall. They're giant. And oh, they look really cool. cool. I'm like, oh, this would be a good thing for my son because he'll think they're awesome as well. Um, so we may stop there. Uh, I may go in and 
try and track down some folks from the Wild Seed Project because they're not they're on my route too. So I might try and just like stop in and say, "Hey, oh, why do you still? Why aren't you? Why don't you turn any of my messages? <laughs> I'll have why? the boombox out." <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's the this post is, that they have to respond to. Well, let's yeah. get you like the trench coat and the boom box yeah. and we'll take a picture and we'll just send it to the yeah. Wild Seed Project. Say, why yeah. why aren't you returning our messages? <laughs> <laughs> Put the pressure yeah, on. We have, uh, this is our vendetta story yeah. with Wild Seed Project. <laughs> no, I have a lot of respect for the Wild Seed Project. So much I want to have them on our podcast and I need someone to respond to me. Yes. And, uh, we have we have multiple people working on our behalf. We do. Now, watch, they've already res- by this point they've probably responded to us. We have something set up, and, and now we have to apologize. And now I'm like, this is. We'll take it back. Remember, we're in the time warp. <laughs> um, this is the future. But we're we're yeah. not leaving everyone empty handed while Tom and I are away on vacation. Uh, this is a second best of. Last week you heard uh, Andrew the Arborist, and we're leaving you with a best of uh, this week. And we we picked handpicked two early episodes that not all of our listeners have made it back towards. That uh, were very influ- influential at the time that we had them on, and the, the first being Claudia West. I would, I would say they're still pretty influential, yeah. friend. Well, the people are. I just meant the episode. Oh, okay, the ep- yeah, I yeah, meant yeah. the episodes were you. influential in the history of yes. the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. But the first episode we're going to share is Claudia West, uh, who is the author of Planting in a Post Wild World, and. That was a real eye-opener for Tom and I, and it kind of changed our perception on a lot of things, particularly cultivars, mm-hmm. which we talked about. Yeah, she she has a – a, I, and I wouldn't say I always ag- agree with this, this idea, but she really promotes this idea of these are not – uh, not wild spaces that we're trying to rewild. Yeah. So sometimes the better choice is, is – um, is a non-native plant or a cultivar of a, a plant that you know is going to succeed. And I shouldn't say I disagree with that concept. I do agree with that concept. I ag- disagree with that. Or I, what am I trying to say? I do this a lot, I find. I like stumble over my words as I'm trying to figure out what I'm trying to say. Um, I think that point is becoming overused as a way to not use native plants. Yeah, I mean, well, we shouldn't use them because it's not a wild area anymore and – I don't think Cloudy West is doing that, no. but the, I know there's definitely other people, people who are there doing are. that as a way to not because they just have this they they don't want to change. Yeah, and you know I I remember I don't know that I've ever shared this on the podcast, but this was the first episode that we had where we went into it saying we have a guest and I'm not sure that I agree with the philosophy fully of this guest. And Cloudy is someone that we know personally prior mm-hmm. to having her on, um, and. By the end of it, I was like, "Oh no, no! I, I, I'm, I'm on board what Cloudy is doing. Yeah. Like we're, yeah. we're, you know, we're. It, it was, it was a fantastic conversation. I walked away from it a different person. So we're happy to share that one. Uh, the, the second episode we're going to share with you today is Benjamin Vote, and it was after New Garden Ethic. And for those of you that listened when it came out, Benjamin broke the news on our podcast that he was writing a second book yeah. at that point. Yeah. So he announced prayer. He even had the working title, and he hadn't announced it yet. So the podcast was the first place he announced that he was he was working on Prairie Up, and that was going to be his second book. And uh, I, I think we were a little limited on time on that one. It was a, a little bit of a shorter episode because we didn't have a lot, but it was, uh, you know, it was one of. Benjamin was one of the first people. They're like, "Oh wow, we gotta, 
we we were able to get this guest on the yeah. podcast. Like I can't yeah. believe he's coming on. So yeah, I, in fact, I even said that on our, our last best of was yeah. I was I didn't know Benjamin, never met him, but we had a LinkedIn connection, so I reached out to him and just said, "Hey, would you be interested?" And I was so shocked when he said yes. I was like, <laughs> oh, wow, that was easy. <laughs> so yeah, well, I was really glad we could link up, get him on, and uh, and have that conversation. So yeah, so technically, uh, the next episode, Tom and I. We're already back, or Tom's away at this point, but next episode, Tom and I will be back, and we'll be able to share the stories about our vacations and and cultivate, and uh, until then, we're going to leave you with these two episodes, and keep it native. You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. You probably shouldn't encourage us. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. And uh, I'm not sure if our listeners realize the door they just opened here. Oh, it was uh, a bad, <laughs> bad door to open, I think. But we would like to say thank you to uh, not Raquel. I don't even know. Not Raquel Welch. Raquel, right? Yes. Not Raquel Welch for her five-star review and uh, and giving us a lot of love on the buzz. We said last time how much we enjoy doing the buzz episodes where just Fran and I um, so it's nice to hear that you guys like them as well. It's, feedback uh, is always good. Sometimes yeah. you're throwing things out there and it just kind of gets lost in dead space. So mm-hmm. it's nice to hear that, you know, that kind of feedback. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. And we also want to thank Vicki for her five-star view. Um, and she left some really kind words on our Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. Um, that was super, super uh, nice. <laughs> yeah, that was that was very flattering. But you also gave us... Here And here's where you shouldn't encourage us. You also gave us the green light to go off topic, which is all you got to do is say it once and we're off topic. So I've been dying to have a conversation with Tom about pizza ever since we had the cheesesteak conversation with yeah. John Park. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to talk to you about that. Okay. So we, we can do it. So based on what you and your wife have been doing, mm-hmm. you started visiting top-ranked pizza places in new jersey yeah correct yep, yep. Now, was it for any particular pizza style or was no it- not there was a, a nj.com list that came out that said the best pizza in new jersey and if if you guys don't know if you're not from new jersey our governor has declared new jersey the pizza capital of the world yes um and it's pizza is a big thing in new jersey new york Connecticut, Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah it's, that, it's a big deal. And um, not saying that other parts of the country don't have good pizza. I'm not saying that at all. But it's kind of a mecca in this area, yeah. I think, for good so, pizza. And we're very close to a couple really good spots that were on that top ten list. But uh, you know, so we said, well, these are all ones with or that are within half an hour. So we went to a couple, and there's some other ones that had like cult following. So we went to those two. So we went to, I think it was like six or seven that were on that list, and then. A bunch of others that were just well known in the area. So for, for us, because we're in close to Trenton, New Jersey, Trenton is famous for its tomato pie, mm-hmm. um, and two of the top are Di Lorenzo's and Papa's, yep. um, which actually Barstool Sports they were two of the highest ranked. Yeah, yeah. I think pizza. one was like an eight nine, and one was a nine two. Yeah, nine three. Di Lorenzo's like was yeah. I think was and then nine, the highest three. he ever gave was a nine four. So. so we're we're spoiled by that. But I know one that was high on your list mm-hmm. uh, is I don't know how you if it's Brico or Brico. I've always said Brico. I've always said Brico. It's too. a fancy place, so I figured it's it, had a fancy name. Yes, in <laughs> Westmont, New Jersey, and. Um, they do coal-fired oven pizza, mm-hmm. so we did get the tomato pie there, 
but it gives it a different nuance because it's coal fired. Yeah. But I really enjoyed that. I, you're right. Yeah, that was on for my wife and I's list. That was our favorite. Okay. That was where we enjoyed the most. Um, because it was a little bit fancier. Like you could get some different stuff. I think they had like braised short rib on a pizza. You could get yeah. like uh, honey and and sopressata. You could get some really had, interesting combinations, and yeah. it was really really tasty. And it had that thin crust with mm. the like a tomato pie should be very thin crusted and almost burnt. Now, Cloudy, are you a pizza fan? Like, do you? I love pizza. Are, yes. Are, do you have? <laughs> and, <laughs> do you, do you have a favorite? Like, is there a place that you've had pizza that you're like this? This is the best pizza I've ever had. Um, I think um, you know some of these memories go back to having pizza in Italy. Um, mm. But I I love homemade pizza and just going out in the garden and throwing some fresh tomatoes and spinach on mm. it and you know enjoying it with a few mm. friends. Uh, that's usually the best. Tom's <laughs> right before the podcast. Tom's brother Steve was just throwing him <laughs> yeah, love for yeah. Tom. Apparently, makes you make a really good like cast iron. Pizza, I do right? like cast iron or just right on the grill, and then same kind oh, of concept yes, where I just go yep. out in the garden, get some tomatoes, get some basil, just some other stuff, and and see what I come up with. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm I'm not that talented. I'm with you. <laughs> I have to rely on going, to, finding out where the good places are, and yeah. going there. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's I I I did find that like we talked about cheesesteaks, it's really hard to judge. Like you know mm-hmm. when you've had a good pie, but. In your head, can you go back and and really say that Di Lorenzo's is better than Papa's or Papa's is better than Di Lorenzo's? It's hard. It's, it's hard, hard yeah. because every time you go, you might have a different mm-hmm. experience too. Like there's a place in um, oh I can't remember the town that it's in, um, but it's called Holy Tomato uh, mm-hmm. that that does. That was like, down in that same like Haddonfield Westmont area. Too, yeah, right? and it's uh, Blackwood. It's in mm-hmm. Blackwood, New Jersey, and the first time, first couple times I had it was incredible, and the last time I had it, I was like, ah, oh, something's yeah. I don't know. And, and it's such a personal preference yeah. too, because what was number one on that that um, NJ.com list was in uh, I think it was Brooklyn Square Pizza in Jackson, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and I thought it was top two or three for me, and my wife thought it was the worst one of the ones that we went to so it's a personal preference as well it is and it changes and like even with cheesesteaks i think i've changed what my top cheesesteak was i i I think i found that my favorite cheesesteak is whatever place i'm having a cheesesteak at that (laughs) moment (laughs) you know like oh this is the best cheesesteak and i've said that 20 times easy well you'll have to keep us posted on the next one i will but for now we should really really okay all right all right keep it a little more uh Focused on the plants. All right. Well, just real quick. So last, last, uh, this is going to be all over the place. This is my (laughs) mind on a normal day. So uh, one of our customers who, you know, I love when we get to visit places that we've been Mm -hmm. selling to that we haven't really seen. So I went to a a candlelit pumpkin walk at Sadler's Woods, uh, which is an old growth forest down in the Haddonfield area, which Mm -hmm. I was so, like they have beach with, 13 foot diameter wow like i've never been through an old growth forest like that and it's in the middle of so it's six miles outside of philadelphia it's Mm kind of hard to believe that it's there and hasn't been touched and they do a wonderful job preserving that so um i I think that some of those trees are like 300 years old that's incredible so uh the saddler's woods conservation association doing a wonderful job if you ever get a chance uh and you're in that area, please go visit it because you won't you won't regret it. Yeah, yeah. My wife and I are gonna have to check that out after you sent a couple of the pictures over. 
uh, we'll have to wait yeah. next year for the pumpkin walk, but it just looked like a cool spot to go. My only complaint about the pumpkin walk, it was 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, they do a path and it's all lit with pumpkins that were carved for a competition, which is great, but you need to go back and, and mm-hmm. spend spend yeah. time in it. But, but moving on to today's guest, um, we have a very special guest. who chimed in a little bit already, yes. but we have a very special guest today, one of my favorite people in the industry. I think one of yours my, too, Fran. as well. Yeah. Um, she's a landscape designer, plant advocate, public speaker, a critically acclaimed author, and probably most importantly, a listener requested guest that yes. we're finally getting on. Yes. So, I love that when that happens. So with that, please welcome Claudia West. Wow, thank you. You're too kind. <laughs> but I'm, I'm truly honored to be on your show today and um, just want to thank you for putting together such an amazing podcast and um, I know it takes a lot of work and passion to put together such an amazing program and fill it with fresh content and interesting speakers so we're really grateful for this amazing resource so I'm honored to be here today I, I gotta be honest it's getting harder and harder you know when we first <laughs> when we first start I was thinking about this today when we first started this there was no pressure at all yeah. it was really loose and it's like whatever you know, but now that we have a following and mm-hmm. the guests are getting, I don't want to say better, mm-hmm. but we're getting guests that maybe we maybe thought more high profile, more high profile yeah. guests. It's stressful. Like I, yeah. <laughs> like I'm starting to get stressed. So it's it's kind of <laughs> funny finding the time to do it, wanting to do a great job and put together a great show, mm-hmm. and but trying to keep it loose at the same time. It's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's always nice when it's high-profile people that we also know. Yes. <laughs> it makes yeah. it a little bit easier to have those conversations. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, and I get the sense that the topic itself is getting more and more relevant as well and yeah. more urgent. It, um, so I think the fact that you have such an amazing listening uh, audience um, is, is a really good sign that mm-hmm. you know something needs to happen on a much larger scale here. Um, to- we no longer have this luxury of waiting. <laughs> totally, and it keeps changing, mm-hmm. you know, as it goes along, and we're trying to go along with it. But from what uh-huh. you actually just said, though, you know, one of the things that that we ask a lot of our guests, and we try to keep it on the positive side. Um, but we always ask if it's too late for what's going on and, and what we need to do uh, to preserve nature. We always ask our guests if they feel it's too late. But the one thing that I really took away from your book, and it was really at the very beginning, um, you make a declaration that it's never too late. And for mm-hmm. for our listeners that maybe haven't read your book yet, can you describe just what you noticed from – your childhood, um, mm-hmm. where you grew up, and and what what it where it's at now, and and those changes mm-hmm. that have taken place. Because I mm-hmm. thought that was such a great picture you painted that mm-hmm. that nature has perseverance and and can survive. Yeah, I think it's a, a hopeful message um, that you know I try to carry into the world based on my background and uh, where I come from. I was raised in Eastern Germany, so I, I think I can officially say that the country I was born in no longer exists, <laughs> which is in many ways a good thing. Yeah. Um, and I do remember uh, that time uh, through, clearly through a child's perspective. So uh, my family, parents uh, have a very different perspective. But what I do remember so clearly is a very depleted state 
capture an incredible amount of pollution and uh, devastation, uh, high-intensity agriculture and factories that let their affluent right into streams and rivers. Um, this all changed dramatically with the fall of the wall and reunification of Germany. And we have experienced a traumatic amount of healing in landscapes that we thought would be beyond repair. So that gives me the energy <laughs> and the knowledge uh, to, to really believe that it is never too late. It may be too late for nature as we know it, but as we all know that there, it's a gradient. There are many forms of nature. In a way, you know, an old parking lot with a few wild plants growing in it is also nature, but maybe not desirable nature. <laughs> yeah. So, mm-hmm. it, so I think it's um, really encouraging to see that not everything is lost and that we can see change and um, ecological intensification and uh, you know, increase in biodiversity and ecosystem functions, even in a very small amount of time. In my short lifetime, I've already seen landscapes heal that um, you know were gray and dark and incredibly polluted just a few decades ago. So that that's a hopeful message and foundation um, for a landscape designer to practice on. Oh, totally. You know, and it's, it's so cyclical. Mm-hmm both ways too you know it's my fiance grew up in communist poland mm-hmm. and she grew up on a farm and it was very rural and now she sees mm-hmm. that area isn't very rural anymore <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and it's she's she's seeing it kind of go the other way and she's like oh i remember the forest and i remember this and it's it's mm-hmm. changing you know but it all it all seems very cyclical uh you know, and you realize once it's gone what what you're missing. Um, but mm-hmm. you, you did mention natives, and and one of the things that we bring up a lot is what is native. We have an internal st- struggle here, and a lot of our customers do. Like, what is native? Uh, what period are we restoring to? Uh, and those lines are really muddied. It's it's hard to tell. In your opinion, is there a new native? Is are, are natives as we know them different now? Is there is is it a new phase for us? I think there have always been different definitions of what native is. Um, I have a, a more European perspective on that, and. Um, For most European uh, planting designers, it has always been less about where a plant comes from uh, for certain historic reasons as well, and more about what does it actually do. And I'm really sometimes... I'm sad when I hear conversations uh, get stuck in this never-ending circle of trying to identify you know, how far back do we go or how many miles away from our project site should we you know, draw a line and say outside of this line it is no longer native or appropriate to plant it because I honestly think that we can't make these decisions, that all these lines we draw are rather arbitrary. Mm-hmm. So I think a way forward here and out of this uh, never-ending circle <laughs> yeah. might be to ask instead, what does it do? And to get better at understanding what functions species have, how they interact with their ecosystems, what they bring to a certain design challenge, um, how they behave with each other and everybody else in that ecosystem. I think once we start relaxing you know, this <laughs> discussion and focus on what really matters, um, it will help us create better planting designs because not every plant that um, 
might be you know native to your immediate area has super high ecological function uh, thinking mm-hmm. about some species like ferns for example that will never see a pollinator on them mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. so it's just a much more nuanced um, conversation and what i find so encouraging is that at least in my perspective it feels like um, more and more professionals um, are shifting their attention to learning more about the functional aspects of plants um, and are trying to make more educated decisions about including these plants into you know, their, their designs based on what they bring to the table and not based on exactly where specifically they come from. And that's a, a great point you just yeah. made. And I, yeah. I was given, um, we had a socially distanced tour for a local community college this morning. And, um, and we kind of brought something similar to that topic up, how there's so many functions that plants have beyond the aesthetic. And um, I guess mm-hmm. I was I was kind of complaining about landscape architects. <laughs> what was really happening? I was saying how because they were asking about survival rates in projects, and I guess I said uh-huh. we find architects who really pay attention to the conditions the plants are going in and the function they want it to perform have better success than the ones who say I want something that's pink here, and yeah. just kind of go for the aesthetic of what it's supposed to look like versus the functions it's supposed to perform yeah so. yeah and you know i i think you can easily have two sides that are just arguing what's best and it doesn't work at all unless there's some kind of middle ground mm-hmm. that's that's found mm-hmm. so when when i started my career 30 plus years ago i started on the ornamental side of the industry and then i switched to the ecological side about 13 years ago and from a design standpoint I kind of felt like at that time there was nothing in common between those two sides. It was just two sides. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel, Cloudy, that your methodology bridges the gap in between those two mm-hmm. sides. And, and you've, you've found a middle ground, which makes perfect sense. And I thought maybe you could talk about that a little bit and, and kind of what led you to that revelation mm-hmm. of of marrying those two sides together. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really deep question, and um, I think I'm going to try to answer this in a <laughs> intelligent way. But um, I think what what I find so frustrating is when um, so much energy gets uh, you know spent on discussions which are often very heated, emotional, and often based on anecdotal um, evidence. When you know, right now our world is falling apart. It certainly feels that way. And what we need more than anything is action. <laughs> And a united front. So I think that um, to really work at the scale that our planet needs right now, horticulture, ecological horticulture, land management, restoration, conservation, all of these different um, uh, uh, subgroups within what we sometimes call our industry or our profession, um, I think it's important that we work together more than ever before. I've never really seen, you know, horticulture and ecological uh, planting design as being two separate things. I think that traditional horticulture has to become more ecological. I think that native planting design has to learn from horticulture and maybe there's room for aesthetic improvements and adding more emotional content to planting. And quite frankly, um, restoration, conservation, all of these different um, professions um, can no longer ignore people. (laughs) People Mm -hmm. are a part of the solution as true wild places hardly exist anymore on the planet. I think that 
And um, maybe the future, the solution is to be more inclusive and not only teach our profession, but also practice this art of working with plants and taking care of the planet in a more holistic way, where we can all learn from one another and speak a clear voice together to reach the folks who need to hear us, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that's one of the things that we've noticed from the podcast with many of our guests. They all maybe are working in different areas, but the common goal is really all the same. Mm -hmm. Everyone's trying to mm -hmm. accomplish the same thing, but you have all these mm -hmm. groups working separately that really could do a lot more mm -hmm. work if they, they join together. And that's we we're we're actually been really happy that some of our guests have asked to talk to other guests and some mm -hmm. of our customers have asked mm -hmm. to talk to, to guests to see if they can collaborate to do things. Yeah. But I think that's one thing when you're all in the ecological restoration side of the industry, but you need to work – both sides need to work mm -hmm. together somehow. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of never thought there was a way that that would happen. I thought like they were almost enemies, but – the the mm -hmm. way you approach it, and, I, and it's your book, and also your partner, it's Tim. Is it Rainer? It's Rainer. Yes, Rainer. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, so the the two of you found just a way to describe mm -hmm. it that makes sense, and it, it's traditionally something different than what we talk about here on on the podcast. Mm -hmm. You know, we're we're typically staying with the restoration side, but it's better if you have people that. Mm -hmm. are are incorporating the message than ignoring the message. Yeah, I think it's absolutely necessary that we break down these inherited barriers and learn more about what we all have in common. We all care about the future of our children and we all love walking through a forest that surprises us with lush and thriving life or sway prairie, right, with sparkling with colors. So I, I think we can no longer afford um, working in these different segments. And um, I think that, um, you know, in our profession with every project or every customer Customer, if you're on the nursery side, um, we can read. Um, we should really try to, um, yeah, preach the outside of the choir and um, teach more about the, the deeper motivations and techniques that are uh, unique to to our part of what we do, um, just to increase awareness of all these other tools that um, we have available but might not see because we think that they live in a different part of their profession. Yeah. So I think that's really so important that we reach more people outside of our little native plant bubble <laughs> <laughs> in, in a, at a scale where um, it's, it's absolutely necessary and needed. Yeah. You know, if you get the right person to, to have that discussion too, I, I find you a very – I've gotten to – see you speak on numerous occasions and and you're a very inspirational speaker you you leave one of your oh, no no problem it's, mm. it's very true but you leave your session at very uplifting thinking yeah you know yes mm -hmm. you know this 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 will work we can do these things and there's a few people mm -hmm. that we've had the the prairie preacher there's there's mm -hmm. people like that that just when you hear them talk they're spreading mm -hmm. a much wider message mm -hmm. um, right but one of the things you did touch on was emotion um and mm -hmm. one of the things that I that stuck out for me in your book was introducing the principle that native plant design is as much emotional as it is functional. And sometimes when you're dealing with it every day, it's easy to look at it as a mm -hmm. thing of function. Um, but that connection is more than just a transfers of transference of energy because we're very emotional when when you see a beautiful prairie or, mm -hmm. or woods. How is it for you as a designer uh, mm -hmm. or architect to 
to strike that emotional balance between function and emotion? I think that um, this emotional content or evocative quality that planting can create is key in reconnecting us with with wild things, with the green things out there, with our home, where we all come from, you know, as people. Um, and uh, I'm sometimes really frustrated when I see malt choking out a little bit of life and emotion <laughs> that um, planting is trying to to keep, and um, you know, folks are continuing down this downwards spiral just because um, it's in some kind of specification or this is what you've always been doing. I think that as people who are losing nature and inspiring natural places at an alarming rate, we need the planted areas around our houses and our parks along our city streets to bring some of this back for our own physical and psychological health. I think as people, we shouldn't demand any less than beautiful emotional planting. We should not accept <laughs> anything yeah. that um, is not lush and thriving because we now have all of these tools available to create and maintain planting like this. Um, the, the science of planting design has made huge advances just in the last few decades and there is no longer an excuse why all these plantings that surround our parking lots our grocery stores our libraries you name it couldn't do better i think there's a huge opportunity here to bring more beauty into all of our lives not just um, privileged neighborhoods uh, in areas where the luxury of gardening can be afforded but also in other parts of cities where communities desperately need um, yeah, all the benefits that um, plants and beautiful plant planting bring to the table. Yeah, you know, when you, when you see it done right, it definitely catches your eye. And, and, mm -hmm. and I'll be honest, from, from my standpoint, you, you know, you, you have people that when they approach it, you know, when you see a parking lot or, or a business complex that isn't done right, you know, you understand some people view it as a job. And mm -hmm. um, you get bogged down in your job sometimes. Even mm -hmm. for as much as we love nature mm -hmm. and plants, it's still – you know, you can be in it because you love it. But it's still a job, and sometimes that can still bog you down. Mm -hmm. Now, I know mm -hmm. I'm not one to complain, <laughs> <laughs> but Tom, you, you've heard me complain. It's easy to get bogged oh, down yeah. because it's yep. – it's, you yeah. know, you're dealing with – with maybe people that have different philosophies or different ideologies mm -hmm. and it different it, knowledge mm -hmm. levels yeah. Is, yeah it, it makes a difference or, or they're in you know you do have an industry sometimes where people are just in it for the money they're not mm -hmm. in it for the love of it mm -hmm. so it, it takes on different well, that, approaches mm -hmm. that's a really good point and I, I think the money could actually be a reason not to do you know a multi-dominated uh, landscape that requires regular springs of roundup to keep it looking you know under control. <laughs> there are several um, planting systems that are being developed and, and are very successful in, in Europe that address exactly that maintenance concern and have shown that um, if plantings that have incredibly dense uh, vegetation with you know all the emotional uh, you know color themes and uh, beautiful uh, color and texture aspects can actually cost a fraction of what a more traditional planting um, would cost. So I think that the wonderful thing about what we do is that we we have several tools available to us to sell what we do and what we believe is right as a solution depending on 
how our clients define the problem. Yeah, for some, it's uh, entirely maintenance uh, related. For others, it's the skill level required to manage and maintain a system like that. Or there are other motivations. So I think the beautiful thing about you know the cross-pollination that is happening between professionals in the world, you know, because of podcasts like yours and many others and you know books that are written and still have to be written, <laughs> yeah. um, that we learn from one another and find more of these tools to improve these opportunities that we all, you know, come across sometimes on a daily basis. Yeah, you know, and to, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. I apologize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's fine. Go ahead. Um, you know, one of the things that we always talk about is you have to continue to be curious and you have to be you have to mm-hmm. continue to learn. And it's easy to, to get stuck in the wheelhouse of what you know and what you do well. Like I think a lot of these landscape design companies do what they've always done and and they know it well and and they'll do a planting with the mulch because they want the maintenance they want to spray mm-hmm. they want that they want to say the, hey we can come yeah, back two or back. three times a year and we'll you know we'll mulch it every spring we'll you know and and edge the beds and we'll do this but i think you know we we've not even nature doesn't go on uh you know, you have to take care of it. It it, it doesn't take care of mm-hmm. itself. So there's mm-hmm. maintenance in a very good mm-hmm. ecologically sound place. It's just a different ideology. Mm-hmm. If you know, it's just getting the word out there, and that's the hardest thing. Yeah. Some people don't want to hear it. Some people just don't know it exists. <laughs> yes, <laughs> true. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. You know, and I, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. That. Um, nature or natural systems require maintenance. I think that is um, such an important message right there. Um, Learning more and more about the United States, which is a new country for me, I'm, you know, catching up. (laughs) But um, I'm learning that what I first thought of as, um, you know, what I perceived as being wilderness, the American forest, all these lands, um, you know, with wild creatures in them and incredible biodiversity. It's actually an ancient cultural landscape, um, not that different from cultural landscapes that you know, I have observed in many other parts of the world, all across Europe and China, you name it. Um, and uh, humans and their actions, their, you know, land management, them culturing things in, in many different ways often actually created more biodiversity and more stable systems mm-hmm. and, um, you know, shaped um, uh, systems that with uh, the breakdown of some of these old management cultures um, is, is now, you know, shifting into a new reality. And that's where we are right now. So I, I firmly believe that um, land you know, can be better with people managing, maintaining it. And uh, my husband and I, we uh, managed a family farm up in uh, northern Baltimore County in Maryland. Um, and we see uh, that, uh, you know, actions that we now take that um, try to mimic some of the, you know, old uh, land use that used to happen here not that long ago, um, actually lead to pretty quick improvements in species diversity and ecological function. So um, I think that that is a really important layer of um, our attitude towards I, land. So, well, well said. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree yeah. 100%. Yeah, we, mm-hmm. we had the pain of... Uh, really good picture of this we had dr Dwayne estes on from southeastern grasslands initiative and he just talked about mm-hmm. the importance of fire and um mm-hmm. he explained some of these uh, southern pine savannas very similar to our new jersey pine barrens where if you go through you have the pine trees yeah might have some blueberries or, or 
um, Inkberry Holly underneath uh, some oh. some Greenbrier and not much else. But just by cutting down some of the trees or having a fire come through, it increased the diversity mm-hmm. tenfold. And it was amazing some of the seeds that were in the seed bank. Um, mm-hmm. And in for his organization's uh, purposes, they're looking at grasslands versus um, these pine savannas. They were saying, we're good at mm-hmm. planting trees. We aren't good at creating all this really high quality and more diverse habitat in grasslands. But uh, but he painted a beautiful picture of how that really is. And then Sam Drogi, one of our first episodes, he kind of said yeah. the same thing. It was with editing yeah. is what he called it. And he just kind of went through and, well, yeah. I'd edit this out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it created all this. Yeah other potential for other things you know we just speaking with one of our customers we were talking with mark gallagher at princeton hydro and they're they were working on a project uh on a waterway not far from the nursery that was all completely covered in frag and they were removing the frag to kind of think fragmites just to think what they were going to do next and they were really surprised in the seed bank pickerel weed came back uh, mm-hmm. duck potato came back cattails came back uh, arrow arrow like they were like nature was telling us what should be here mm-hmm. what was here before then and it was still in the seed bank and it was just waiting to see the light of day mm-hmm. to come back mm-hmm. and that's a beautiful thing that's the that's oh, the type of yes. thing Stunning. we love yeah. hearing um, yeah yeah the land has a certain memory I, I totally agree yeah mm-hmm. one of the things we wanted to touch on that that i loved about your book is you kind of approach things as an ecosystem um and not a space it's it's function and functionality and what should these plants you know if 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 they're in the right place they're performing the right function and they're happy um and i i thought that was really novel you know just because our listeners, we get asked a lot, you know, about should we amend soil uh, for planting? Um, you know, I want to, I want to plant mm-hmm. this plant, and it likes dry conditions, but I want to put it in a wet condition. Can I amend it? And I really think that question is a gross misunderstanding of where plants belong. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I feel what you talk about in your book kind of really answers that question. Maybe not the way they want <laughs> want it to be answered. <laughs> You know, because I, I really feel that if you're planting the plant in the right place, it doesn't need to be amended. There's, you know, everything has a place where it's happy. And when you try to alter that, sometimes plants aren't happy. Um, what is your best advice to our listeners um, mm-hmm. for that kind of scenario? Yeah, so I, I think the, the first lesson I learned as a planting designer is that plants never lie. They will always <laughs> tell you the truth. <laughs> You can't make them do something they don't want to do. So the sooner you understand what they need, the better. (laughs) So you have to listen. (laughs) You have to listen. Yes. And I find that some of the world's best planting designers, they they have a a gift for looking at plants and communities and reading them like an open book um, and uh, have a connection uh, with that and are able to interpret it interpret what um, plants are trying to tell you sometimes you know in in certain you know in a very nuanced way (laughs) so uh, i think my advice would be um to 
leave the vegetable garden, um, you know, uh, methods behind and yeah. don't assume that every plant will be happy if you, you know, add a ton of compost and make the soils perfect. Um, we all know that plants grow, you know, anywhere on the planet, really, yeah. uh, even in the toughest of conditions. Um, so we all know that plants have very different requirements, but what they really need is they need three things to line up or if you don't do that, planting will be doomed from day one. <laughs> and this goes back to um, Philip Grimes' CSR strategy, the competitive strategies. So, and, and we try to build every single one of our designs on this foundation. We try to line up those three things. So the first one is site conditions. Um, we know from Philip Grimes' strategy that um, sites can be stressful, they can be perfect with tons of good resources, or they can be subject to frequent disturbance. Most habitat types fall into one of these three, more or less. That's the first thing we need to understand. So the second thing we then need to understand is after we've identified these conditions, what plant palette is appropriate? And here we often go to you know, similar habitats in the wild to try to understand who evolved strategies to deal with these kind of conditions. And these are our plants. So now we have a site. We know what habitat type it is. We know a plant palette that will likely survive on that. But that's not enough. If you stop there, it's doomed. Mm -hmm. The third thing you need is a management strategy that lines up with your first two points. If your management changes the site conditions, it's doomed because the plants will change. <laughs> if your management, you know, adjusts new plants or brings new species into the mix, they won't match your site conditions. It's doomed. So really all three things, your site conditions, your plant palette, and how you manage it need to line up to make a more or less <laughs> stable planting that, you know, won't turn into a maintenance nightmare or fall apart the second you, you plant it. So an example would be, for example, if you know you are planting a green roof system, mm -hmm. you, know, you can very clearly see it's probably going to be a pretty stressful site um, you know, with dry conditions, probably shallow soil media, high UV intensity, probably high pH, you name it, stressful. Okay, we got our habitat. <laughs> yeah. Now we go and find plants for that. We we'll probably look for, you know, maybe dry grassland, prairie species, succulents, you name it. That's the second one. But the third piece we need for this green roof to be successful is a management strategy that will match that. That means if that management strategy turns on irrigation water, we're changing the site conditions, it's doomed because these plants mm. will die, right? So yeah. if that doesn't line up, that's the third piece, then we're not going anywhere. <laughs> so in all of our plantings, we try to approach it this way. It's like the holy trinity of planting design. <laughs> <laughs> and that elevates management, you know, to where it needs to be. It needs to be part of the thought process from, you know, the first second you're even putting, you know, pencil to paper. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. The, you know, the, the, what what I really – what struck me about your response, even though we're talking about functionality, that was a very emotional response. Mm -hmm. And it's <laughs> when, when, when you – which I love, and, you know, and, and that's one mm -hmm. of the things I love about hearing you speak. It's, it's hard not to be romantic about these types of conditions, even though we're talking about functionality. We're still talking about a thing of beauty that we have a, mm -hmm. a emotional mm -hmm. connect with, and I think it's just – are you ready to hear that? <laughs> and that was kind of my reaction was that's going to be 
for a lot of people, it's almost like a hard pill to swallow because they get so attached to a plant mm -hmm. because of its aesthetic. And they, um, I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head, but they really want a certain plant because they love the flowers, they love the leaves, they love something about it, but they don't have uh -huh. the site condition or they don't have yeah. the management plan for it. And then they get really upset when it fails almost to the mm -hmm. point where they just keep trying and trying and trying because <laughs> they just want it. I've even done this with, with cardinal flowers. I've done this. Oh, I've, I've done it like, too, yeah. I want cardinal flowers so bad and I'll just keep planting it even though it hasn't worked and it, it probably would never work if I just keep trying the same thing. But um, yeah, 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 it's it's tough for a lot of, and I, I know when I consult with people a little bit on their home gardens, that's just kind mm -hmm. of the feedback I, I give them is like, if it's, you got to mm -hmm. make sure you're, choosing the mm -hmm. right stuff for the conditions or you're fighting an uphill battle the whole time you know you know and it's and and so many times there's so many other factors we're trying to make something natural of an unnatural mm -hmm. condition um and there's factors that you can't control um which which means that trying to restore something to what we consider native isn't necessarily always possible because mm -hmm. it's it's mm -hmm. not a native condition so one of the things that in your book that mm -hmm. you, you discuss is that Maybe there's there's no going back like in some places like if a city's a city it's not going to be what it was before it was mm -hmm. a city and and actually um Enrique Sala talked about that he's like New York City is about as unnatural as you can get and it's not going back yeah. <laughs> you know so it's how do you proceed from there and and where do you go and it's what's what's the new what's the new norm so one of the mm -hmm. quotes that stood out to me in the book was what we see growing together now is only one possible version. Countless other plants will work together if they just have the chance to meet in the wild or in cultivation, which I think is so true. And since you've adopted this, how how have you seen its success going forward? Are, are you are is it is it met with open arms as as you're doing this and presenting this? Well, this is really not something that you know we invented. I think yeah. that's what horticulture has done since there has mm -hmm. been horticulture, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I think uh, it, it all depends on, well, the, the skill level of a you know designer or a, a gardener, um, because this um, you know combining species from different you know areas in one country or from different parts of the world requires a deeper understanding of these plants and what they how they would behave with one another. So it's very much based on the skill and experience. Um, it's, it's a little bit of experimentation on the gardener's side, but uh, I think it can work. Um, what is important to say, though, is that we're, we're not advocating here for um, you know, bringing plants from everywhere oh, no. and combining everything with one another. I think yeah. that what we see growing together in you know wild systems, um, even in you know systems that have naturally sorted themselves out um, and are not actually planted by people, but these things are always one of the greatest inspirations for our work uh, because it gives us an opportunity to really study how these plants nestle with one another and how they share spatial or temporal niches. Um, they allow us to understand more about how we can bring 
the highest amount of functional and biological diversity into a planting by not thinking about, you know, one plant beside another, but mm. how possibly could we put one on top of the other, you know, using mm. their metabolisms and life cycles as an advantage. Uh, all with the goal to create more abundance um, in, you know, our planted areas and to increase uh, functional diversity as much. Um, so I think it, it's a wonderful thing to see um, that many more combinations and uh, yeah, uh, plant communities are possible than what we see in the wild. But we also have to be really careful when we design these things and do our homework because it, it may fail if we don't. You know, one of the things that whenever we have a discussion like this, one of the things that we always see push and pull on is mm -hmm. pollinators and wildlife and what those plants um do they encourage native pollinators and wildlife do they encourage mm -hmm. um i don't want to say invasive but um non-native i guess pollinators and wildlife which it's hard to say because there's so much non-native stuff here <laughs> it's mm -hmm. yeah. it's it's hard to you know I'm i'm even to a point where i don't know how to answer those questions you know, everyone <laughs> everyone wants to be a purist to a, to a sense, but is that even mm -hmm. feasible or possible? Do you when when you're designing and and you're taking these approaches, do you factor in pollinators and wildlife? Is that uh, you know, I guess it depends on the job or, or depends on the scenario. But is that something no, that you just, look at yeah. when you're? It is absolutely part of our DNA. Um, you know, every single project, even if it is more a traditional um, blo blocked planting for you know a commercial setting, um, we will always uh, include as many species as we can with really high uh, pollinator value or being host plants or just having that functionality. Because I, I totally believe that um, creating ecologically dead planting it just the solution we, we can we cannot do that <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think we have this incredible privilege right now to be on the design team for the new uh, pollinator and bird garden at uh, Pendit Arboretum up in State College, Pennsylvania. Right. And uh, we are part of an amazing team there, um, working both with uh, Harlan Patch and entomology department at the university, as well as um, DDA Design Studio out of uh, Colorado and um, incredible um, manager uh, of the Arboretum, Sherry Edelson. And uh, this project is really exciting because it... Um, the entire design is very much based on giving these pollinators and birds a foundation for life. And that does not only include just putting the right kind of plants in there. It also includes, you know, habitat, water, um, you know, connections to other remnants of, of native areas. All of these other pieces that um, insects and birds but life really needs beyond food. <laughs> um, and I think just from this one project, we learned so many more things that we can now fold into other projects that make them richer. And many times our clients have no idea we're doing this, <laughs> but we believe it needs to be done. And uh, we, we take this very seriously. I think that there is opportunity in um, making even a simple you know, green mulch planting around a few shrubs mm -hmm. more ecologically valuable by doing your homework and seeing what can you sneak in <laughs> what choices can you make to to make it better to squeeze every bit of function out of every square foot we, we get our hands on i think that's the level of intervention that we need right yeah. now and it's really i think our profession has to stand up to this um landscape architects and beyond um it is no longer good enough to just design 
I think it yeah. requires every one of us to help with this now and not wait. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. You know, mm-hmm. and it's funny. I think we probably have more information at our fingertips and we've learned more mm-hmm. probably in the last 10 years than we've learned in the previous 100 years uh, as far as a lot of these interactions go. And we're just really, I think, realizing mm-hmm. how much we don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or how much information yeah. we've lost. So uh, true. Yeah. Because – yeah. Maybe we didn't like Sam Drogi with with cataloging yeah. native bees. Mm-hmm. Like they're like we've just started. We're just learning. We don't even know what yeah. has already perished <laughs> that yeah. we have no knowledge of what they were mm-hmm. and why they're gone. You know, but at least uh, mm-hmm. there's something now. So we're we're constantly learning. It's just one of the, mm-hmm. it's just one of those things where it's hard to to pinpoint what's right. You know, it's mm-hmm. I, no, I don't think any of us can really say what's right, and that's a constant battle. But as long mm-hmm. as we're all working to the same common goal, yeah, it's you, you know if you still get that same connection and that same emotional mm-hmm. response, is it wrong? Mm-hmm. I probably yeah. not. Yeah. <laughs> probably right. not. And just to, to add to your point there, I think that um, there's so much we don't know. I couldn't agree more. Um, it's really hard sometimes to decide: should I use this species, which is you know really good for short tongue bees, or am I benefiting you know Lepidoptera today? Mm-hmm. Um, and there, you know, just because um, maybe this one plant attracts, you know, 10 species and the other one only five doesn't mean we have all the data yet to make that decision. So there's no way we know enough at this point to really make decisions with our designs. But <laughs> I think there's one thing we can all do to still do a really good job at ecologically intensifying planting. And that is to make planting more abundant, to add more plants. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. think nurseries love hearing that, right? Yeah. <laughs> but oh, yeah. more of everything to it and fill these voids that, that are so it's like an epidemic in horticulture right now that we're accepting gaps everywhere. But just by filling them with more plants, I think we're squeezing so much more function, and not just for, for pollinators, but think about stormwater, soil treatment, carbon sequestration, the list is really long, into even smaller spaces. I think that there is opportunity here too, that's just through layered planting and being smart about how we nestle plants with one another, um, you know, in addition to thinking about pollinators and all that, yeah, I- can improve every single, you know, space that we create. And plants will figure it out. You know, their job is to to survive. <laughs> you know, you if you if you squeeze them in, they'll they'll make it work. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you look in nature, mm-hmm. there's no open spots. You know, by design. Very few. You know, it's mm-hmm. or very few. It's they. You know, they'll they'll find a way to survive, and that's that's a great point, mm-hmm. actually. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think the important thing is are you, are we asking the right questions, which I think we are, mm-hmm. and you know, and what what we see in as in any industry, like there's still nurseries that grow invasives, exotic mm-hmm. invasives, because they can sell them and they make money mm-hmm. and it doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't connect with them why they shouldn't do it because mm-hmm. they've been doing it for so long. So it's you know, it's 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 changing that mindset just to at least ask that question and think about those things. Mm-hmm. And I think if yeah. you are is there really a right or wrong? Mm-hmm. I I guess what yeah. I'm getting. I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you just have to show it um, and show what an alternative could look like and demonstrate why there is a market surrounding this alternative and, you know, what it takes to 
you know, to be in that market <laughs> to to get certain people's attention. So, yeah. yeah, I think if you, if you educate mm-hmm. the ge- general public and they know mm-hmm. not to ask for those plants and ask for something else, yeah. it's an opportunity for these. Mm-hmm. You know, you may be doing this much business doing this, but there's a big mm-hmm. opportunity out there if if you open your mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, to I it. agree. So. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I did want to surprises me. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, yeah. you go. You go. I'm <laughs> changing the topics. Yeah. <laughs> it's it surprises me how many um, of our clients um, are now asking for something different, something that differs from what they learned from their parents, how they thought, you know, residential landscapes look, and um, you know they've had moments that opened their eyes. Uh, it might be watching a certain you know show on TV or listening to your podcast or. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just a hike that was like an epiphany and something clicked. And um, I find it encouraging to see clients not only, I mean, they're across the board in, in many different um, you know, communities having these moments of uh, waking up and demanding more than your decoration. And I find that really encouraging and hopeful for our future. I do too. And I think with the pandemic, people, and, and we've mentioned this plenty over the last year, have found a mm-hmm. new way to connect with nature because, mm-hmm. you know, you were limited with what you could do. You couldn't go to dinner. You couldn't go to a movie or walk through a mall. You, you know, you wanted to get out. Mm-hmm. You connected with nature. And I think this was new for a lot of people yeah. uh, or, or life-changing for me. I mean, it really yeah. brought back a different passion for me, I think, for work, you know, just mm-hmm. stepping away from it and enjoying it and not doing it mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. for, a, yeah. you know, for, for a job. Yeah, it's meaningful. Yes. Yeah, I think that's uh, really inspiring. And that gives us a lot of energy as we tackle sometimes difficult or, you know, com- clients or complex projects. Um, so every now and then it helps circle back to why we are doing this and lift ourselves up. And that gives new energy to plow forward. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. I am I am going to change the topic a little bit. Okay. Go um, because we have such a great designer or landscape designer on here right now i want to make sure we ask some design questions for our listeners at home who might be working on their home garden or planning out a new garden in their in their home you've touched on some key things i know you really like with the using plants instead of mulch stacking plants um integrating that vertical what are those like the big takeaways that you want that at home gardener to change how they garden, like starting out with mm-hmm. not using mulch and using plants. What are some of the other mm-hmm. keys that, that you really like to see with home gardeners? Um, I think maybe um, one of the most important ones is to not hold back on plants, indulge, have more of what you love. Not just one, go shopping. (laughs) (laughs) Buy them smaller so you can afford it, but fill the spaces with the things that bring you joy, either the plants directly or the creatures that um, these plants bring into your garden that then in return bring you joy every single day. Um, Make the paradise, invite life and um, be daring. Just trust your instinct. Uh, Many of us still feel what is right. We evolved in a natural environment. And a few hundred years of living in cities or just a few decades of multiculture have not wiped that out. I think we instinctively still know what is beautiful. Think about the hike you did in spring when all the Virginia bluebells were covering this entire valley and how, how that made you feel. Why shouldn't yeah. we have any less in our gardens? <laughs> yeah, you know, and there, it, it, 
there's really no right or wrong. Like you can be creative mm -hmm. with this. Uh, there's yeah. principles you want to follow, but you can, mm -hmm. you, you know, the sky's the limit. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's great advice. Yeah, that's great advice. I, I agree. And not to be afraid, right? Um, yeah. Just really go for it. Yeah, you, you can't <laughs> mess up. <laughs> the only mistake you could make is not having plants in your garden and <laughs> letting some mulch industry tell you that this is the way you should be doing things because that is not the truth. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. So I I have a question mm -hmm. for you, and this is one of my favorite questions to ask people because you are so good at this and so passionate about this. Did you always know that this is where your path would lead? Like what was your your journey to um, yeah. to get here? That's a really good question. I think um, so after the war fell in Germany, my family started um, a plant nursery and a small design build firm. So I learned uh, the craft of propagating plants and working with them as well as managing planting long term from a super early age on. And, you know, I loved it. But, you know, as a rebellious teenager, I think I left that world for a little bit to see what else is out there. Um, but then I circled back to it um, because, quite honestly, um, the older I got, the more I realized how how much I love nature and how much it needs our help. So I learned, um, uh, I studied with uh, Wolfgang Ömer, Ömer van Sweden, um, a very, um, very inspirational uh, planting designer, landscape architect, um, who brought in many ways, um, you know, working with perennials to the United States and um, was one of the first people in this country here who used uh, perennials in huge massings in, in very exuberant, daring uh, combinations, you know, to not just covering a few feet, but square miles with planting. Yeah. And uh, it inspired me so much what these types of plantings gave people back, <laughs> how they not only gave joy, but also, you know, actually created lower maintenance in some, uh, some areas and brought life back. So that was really one of the moments when I realized I would like to do that too. But I don't want to do this just from a horticultural perspective to please people. I think the times have changed. We live in a different universe now. Yeah. I think that every single opportunity we have with planting can do way more than that. It's an, it's an opportunity to bring plants back, not on, just into the gardens, but we all know that plants escape gardens. And these spontaneous plants at some point become part of nearby ecosystems. So I see every planting, not only as something that pleases people and pollinators and all that, but also as an opportunity to enrich the ecosystems that surround a particular project site. And with that, our profession has a lot more power and um, it's much more important than we sometimes, you know, are led to believe. Yeah. I, so I think that's really gratifying. <laughs> I love those stories. I love that aha moment. Tom, I don't even know if mm -hmm. you know this, but before I came to Pinelands, I contemplated making a career change. So I was in a position, I was the sales manager at Princeton Nurseries and, and, they had decided to close the doors. So at that point, mm -hmm. I knew I had to to find a new job, but was like, now I can make a change. I never, you know, it, I never felt at that point it was my calling. Coming to Pinelands Nursery was my aha moment mm -hmm. where I'm like, this is what I want to do. This is what I was missing being on this side of the industry. It gave me purpose and meaning that I didn't kind of feel I had on the other end of the mm -hmm. industry. So that was like my aha moment where I was like, this is mm -hmm. like it. So I love hearing like, 
mm-hmm. like wh- how that hit you. That was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. So and it's it's still evolving. <laughs> yes, yes. To- oh, definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. To be continued, yeah. <laughs> so I know we we were trying to keep it to a certain time limit, and we're we're at about that. So I, we should probably try to wrap it mm-hmm. up a little bit. So we have just like a couple quick questions, and then final thoughts. We're curious if there's another book book in the works. Well, um, Thomas and I are starting the process. Um, you know, just through the last few years of uh, you know spending more time practicing what we preach, and yeah. um, after we started Phyto Studio, now really getting these projects under our belt, and um, you're know, using this this approach, this method, um, and an incredible diversity of uh, project types. Um, you know, I, f- I feel that there's something is evolving. We, okay. we have something to say again, and um, we're at the very early stages of um, understanding how to articulate that and how to give this 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 knowledge to people. Um, so yes, mm-hmm. awesome. Well, we're excited about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so our our last question, always, and it's always the most important question, is what is your favorite native plant? Oh, goodness. <laughs> I couldn't answer this. Uh, it changes by the day and sometimes by the hour. Um, <laughs> well, what what would it be right now? So uh, right now, I think um, I, I have this love affair with violets. Um, okay. <laughs> um, this is a time of year when you really see them shine, when you know other perennials are starting to go dormant and they have wintergreen foliage and you know the fact just spread their seed is, is really so obvious and in many places they are some of the last remaining ground covers now that will carry um, a planting through the winter until you know fresh life emerges in the spring mm-hmm. i love um, the resilience of them and the fact that they don't need human life support to be a part of planting a very you know long-lived one um, and the fact that they can um, even if you just introduce a few in your new planting find open ground on their own and not require enormous resources to fill gaps um, they're really beautiful and uh, apparently lepidoptera really depend on them quite a bit according to doug Tellamy's list um so yeah i think it's violets right now <laughs> yeah oh, that's a great choice and and speaking of <laughs> dr Tellamy, do you want to mm-hmm. can we tom do you want to say well i yeah. guess we have to so. yeah yeah <laughs> but um so he's actually going to be our next guest. We've been we've been kicking around the idea of having him on for a while, and he actually, in coordinating when he was going to come on, he told us to to tell you hello as well. So Aww. he wanted to say hi. So nice. um, yeah, so he's coming to be on next week. Yeah, yeah. So that's we're we're excited about mm-hmm. that. But yeah. that's that's a great choice. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love hearing that. Do you have you know growing up in Europe and then moving to uh, North America and having traveled? Do you have a favorite like wild space that like it could be a forest, a park, a prairie? Is there one place that mm. that you've visited that just really had an emotional connect with you that you kind of might say, you know, this is one of my favorite places? I think the answer might surprise you. Okay. Um, what I find most exciting and inspiring Actually, the wild spaces I see in cities like Baltimore, where vacant lots have come down and I see vegetation reclaiming, you know, sometimes contaminated bare ground, rubble, right? Yeah. For me, that, what I learned from just, you know, walking on my hands and knees, crawling through <laughs> these spaces and understanding how this process happens can be... <laughs> 
not only hopeful, but it teaches me so much. Um, in addition to you know, the many, many I do, you know, sometimes uh, monthly, um, other natural areas. But um, yeah, so I think you know, accepting wild not only as you know a nature area or a park somewhere, but the wild that is right under our noses. That is super fascinating. You know, it's funny because <laughs> Doctor Sala, when he was on, talked about Chernobyl. And mm-hmm. how since it's uninhabited, nature is kind of reclaiming it mm-hmm. and taking over and how interesting that is. Just, you know, when, you know, we'll, we'll kind of end it the same way we started it. Like, and you're thinking, have we done too much damage? Is it too late? That's that's a prime example mm-hmm. of that it's not, you know, nature will find mm-hmm. a way. It's coming back on its own. So absolutely. That's, yeah. that's a great way. So we, we always that's end up the podcast with a final thought. So this is where we give you the floor. Um anything if you want to summarize if you want to add anything promote anything talk about anything this is your your spotlight you can you can say whatever you want (laughs) (laughs) so i think um to sum it up i i would love to address your listeners directly and um just say how how important it is that we all understand that the world we live in is the world we make um that every opportunity we have to you know, use plants to make it better should not be wasted. Um, there's really a sense of urgency here. And um, I truly believe that every single plant counts and um, every single space is connected to another space <laughs> that will benefit uh, from you simply adding a beneficial plant to it. And um, you're taking ownership of this problem. I really think that the way to a better future will start with the actions of every one of us, um, no matter where we are in the world or which you know uh, part of the profession we live in, work in. Um, so I wish you all the energy and the passion to be part of this army who is really trying to make a change right now. So with that, I just want to thank you for having me. And um, once again, thank you for all your passion and the hard and thoughtful work that goes into the podcast. And I can't wait to listen to many exciting future episodes here soon. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you. That's that's very kind of you. Thank you. Tom, do you want to go or would you like yeah, me I'll, to go? Mine's fairly quick. but I So I've gotten to see Cloudy speak numerous times yeah. now. Um, and... You, so, Claudia, you were actually one of the people that really made me think of garden design, not looking at from that landscape architect overhead view with the graph paper and the circles and and more kind of <laughs> just tilt it to how you'd actually be looking at it and just thinking of the verticals. You need that ground cover. You need that next layer. And then you just have a couple things that are coming out um, through the canopy of that. And I never really thought about designing a garden that way until – you'd really made that flip <laughs> that 90 degree flip in my mind but uh and then one of the other uh, times i saw you i i got this from my dad but we're like super cheap when we go to conferences and we always drive and leave super early in the morning before we um before we go and we don't we never get hotels yeah like anywhere we go we never get you, hotels. you, you commute it's, it's, it's well a, we'd rather leave it like yeah. two in the morning than, yes. than stay overnight but there was one time I went i don't remember what conference is but i did that and i left it super early in the morning and i got there and um, was really excited to hear your talk. And your voice is just so soothing that it actually put me to sleep. Oh, <laughs> so I'm hoping that we get some double listens here. Oh, yeah, yeah. People listen the first time for the uh, for the content, and then maybe when they listen, uh, they can put it on later tonight, and it'll just kind of soothe them off. Soothe to them sleep off. Tonight. <laughs> so, yeah. soothe, nice, Thank you, nice Tom. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my final thought uh-huh. is when when it comes to ecological thinking. 
or, or native plants, don't draw a line in the sand um, with what your perspective is. Because you know what? Plants don't do that. Plants will intermingle and they'll fill the open spaces. Do the same way with your thinking. No one particular train of thought is correct. We all have the same goal. We, we you know, we've on the podcast had guests that came from so many different angles, but everyone's goal was the same and working together all those things we can all achieve what it is we're hoping to achieve so don't don't be so strict with your thoughts that you're discounting other things when everything has a benefit that we're trying to we're, we're all trying to get that same thing so be open-minded don't draw a line in the sand and just kind of hear all the sides and, and kind of it, it it can all work together you know and that's what we're hoping yeah. that's the only way this is going to work is if it all works mm-hmm. together so. All right. So How's that too deep. For oh, that was good. Well that was a good deep one. <laughs> well, that wraps it up. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy listening to Cloudy West. Make sure you purchase her book, which we never said the name of. We did not. Which is Planting in a Post Wild World. Um, <laughs> that's written by by herself and then uh, her partner Thomas Rainier, who they're partners at Fido Studio. Uh, pick it up at a local bookstore. I think I saw it on Amazon as well. There's a bunch of places you can get it, but it. it Fran got to read it. I've only read a portion of it, but I've heard so many great things about it. Um, so thank you guys for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. We, as always, we'd love to give a big thank you to Stephen Marr for contributing our theme music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. We do have the question and answer line. Uh, and people have started to call, so please make sure you call us at 215-346-6189. Ask us a question. Leave us a comment. If we pick your question or comment, we'll play it on a future uh, episode of The Buzz. Uh, I think we're kind of limiting it to The Buzz yes, to keep, yeah. keep things running smooth. And uh, let's not forget the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. You guys have been great. We have a ton of new members, so keep the conversation going over there. You can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can also check us out at, on Apple Podcasts. That's where we get the five-star reviews that we like to shout out now when yeah. they, they come in. A um, lot of people not saying it yet, but we picked in the last like two or three weeks, we've gotten like seven new five-star reviews, yeah. which is wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. And write something, too. We like it when people write stuff. Yeah. So it's nice to – it's a little confidence boost. So um, you can also listen to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you consume your podcast. We're on Pandora now. I think. We are on Pandora so. now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can even ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast and stay tuned. This is a great episode. Stay tuned for next week. This is a guest that we were hoping to have on since the beginning. We just wanted to get enough street cred <laughs> to have him on. So. Yeah. But with that, thanks, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thanks again, everyone. We will see you again next time. Until then, keep it native. Stay tuned for more of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. In wildness is the preservation of the world. That quote is by Henry David Thoreau, and this, this is the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezik. Uh, We've taken this podcast in a lot of different directions the past few weeks, and regardless of the direction, the common thread has been native plants. 
uh, today that direction is taking you to a higher consciousness. You know, that's kind of the direction we've been headed headed in since the beginning, I kind of feel. Uh, even if we didn't even realize it, uh, the changes have been coming little by little after each podcast. And last week, Tom became a member of the National Wild Turkey Federation. I am now a proud member of New Jersey Audubon. Uh, that happened this past week. Uh, we've been slowly becoming aware, uh, even though we, we both already work for a native plant nursery, it's something that we do every day for a living. So, but sometimes you become a little detached from it uh, just mm-hmm. because it's, it, it is still work. You know, it's still still a job even you, even though you can become emotionally attached to it yeah and, you know? and we know a lot of these things are happening but we don't know the depth that they go into and and uh, some of the really impressive stuff that's going on that we might not get to hear about exactly sometimes you just kind of get pulled away a little bit so today we are going to be among and not above and all listeners and inhabitants of this world are of equal importance and it should not just be today it should be every day but if you woke up today and you were not in that place this show will be your starting line today. Yeah, it is, it's hard to talk about a lot of the issues that we face today uh, without becoming uh, without becoming an active participant in trying to fix them. There's so many things that are going wrong, and you always want to get your hands dirty and say, uh, "Let's let's make this better. <laughs> we can yeah. do something about this." Yeah. Um, but then when we're doing this podcast week after week, uh, regardless of the topic, the the one main theme has become loss of habitat, and it's a uh, it's really hard to not to start thinking about how I've contributed to that problem and what I can change to start fixing it. Uh, specifically with National Wild Turkey Federation, um, as if you listened last week, uh, we talked a lot about food plots. And now that I'm a member, I'm going to start saying, hey, on a national scale, they're using a lot of native plants. And even in New Jersey, they're using a lot of native plants. But I want them to use even more native plants in, uh, in those projects. And I'm looking to be an active participant in that. And... Um, uh, it's, it's really the good first step for me to take. And, um, like we're so often, we remove ourselves from the equation and, uh, but we still need to be participants in that. So, uh, the first place you can start is right in your own home. Yeah. So. I, you know, it's it, exactly. And sometimes you have to think outside the box from what's been handed down or ingrained upon us. A quote that I love is actually from today's guest. In fact, um, and that quote is, a design landscape that does not see beyond the human is a landscape that is devoid of the human. And, uh, you know, it, it's you, you start becoming like aware, like a realization, mm-hmm. and, and you realize that in general we tend to garden like zookeepers. We, we gather pretty things. We put them in cages for us to interact with them on our own terms. And, we you know, we're longing for this connection with, with nature, but we deprive ourselves of it on a very personal level. And that really – that distinction hit home for me when I met my fiance. So on our very first date, my fiance Agatha shared with me that she was, and I knew this ahead of time, but she was born in Poland and she had lived there um, until she was 10 years old. And she actually grew up on a farm in Southern Poland. And it was a very simple life for her. Um, they didn't even have running water. So she, she claimed <laughs> she spent her childhood running around barefoot, interacting with forests. Uh, part of her daily routine was foraging for mushrooms uh, and climbing trees for fruits and nuts. But when she turned 10 in the mid 80s her mother brought her and her brother to live in the united states in in camden new jersey of all places mm-hmm. so and and camden was is bad now but it was really even much worse in in the 80s it was it was kind of a decayed urban remnant of once was what a thriving city so from there she moved from philadelphia and her mother decided to completely americanize the family mm-hmm. and even changed her name from agatha to agatha so she kind of it, it was very traumatic for her and and 
she so much that she felt like she has lived two separate lives. And after she graduated college, she decided that uh, maybe her home was Poland, and she went back there, and it only lasted six months. <laughs> wow. And she was like, "Yeah, I don't, I don't really belong here anymore." But times have changed, and people change. And but it, it really resonated with her every day, and and um, that guided even her choice of where she lives. Uh, she bought a property that connected to Timber Creek Preserve that also functions as a bird sanctuary. And she tries to reconnect and find that connect- connection with, with nature that that was a part of her life every day as a child. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome to be able to connect the nature so close to your home. Uh, I was really fortunate growing up, and, and still I'm still fortunate to be so close to places I can get outside into places where um, – it's not where no man stepped before. There's probably a lot of people have been there, but it's I'll oftentimes be the only one there. Even this morning, I went to the New Jersey Pine Barrens and I'm pulled into a trailhead. I'm the only person there. It's wow. um, it's a really unique experience. Just be the only person experiencing nature, and uh, unfortunately, there's some people who don't get to experience that. And um, especially if you live in an apartment or in a city and you got to travel, you're you're always going to have to travel to experience some nature. Mm-hmm. Um, even the best parks can't necessarily replicate it. To the full extent i agree but uh but that kind of brings us to today's guest and you can kind of if you own a little bit of property even if it's just a little postage stamp you might be able to bring a little nature into your own yard and um and i guess with uh without further ado i want to introduce our our next guest and uh he's a nature writer and entrepreneur and uh most importantly a listener request <laughs> probably yeah, our most requested yeah. most requested guest, so, guest yeah uh we want to bring him on so ben why don't you take a, a second to introduce yourself Hi, I'm Benjamin Vogt. Oh, do you want more? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, you know. <laughs> uh, come on, we got to have fun with this a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I, I am. <laughs> you have, no. like, since we started this, people were telling mm-hmm. us from the very beginning that we had to have you on. So, you know, when we started this, you know, we honestly didn't feel we were ready to have a guest like you mm-hmm. on or that or that a guest like you would take take us seriously in this. So we were actually we're, – we're thrilled that we're at this point at mm-hmm. our podcast and that you've agreed to come on today. It was a big, big deal well, for us. Well, th- thank you. Um, I'm, I'm not the Pope, but I appreciate that. <laughs> and I, <laughs> now, if you, have, if, you have, if you have Doug Ptolemy on, he's, he's, more, he's more Pope-esque. <laughs> you might be a bishop, a bishop though. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so we got to okay. take it one step at a time. <laughs> so. We're working our way up the ladder. Uh, all right, let's go back. I'm Benjamin. Hi, everybody. I'm out here. I'm out here in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, where the prairie used to be, and now we have corn and cattle. Uh, I run a prairie-inspired garden design business. Um, so we're working working mostly with residential homeowners, um, usually urban, suburban uh, lots. Do some acreages. Do some college campuses a little bit here and there. Um, yeah, I'm a writer. I'm an author. I am a father of a precocious toddler. Awesome. That's a great stage. Yeah. That's a great stage. I actually, I I am fortunate enough in, in these times that right now, both of my, I have two teenage boys that are both working at the nursery right now and, and getting, so they're, you know, I get to make sure they're safe and, and, and keeping safe. And at the same time, they're getting to experience you know what we do and it's it's they're at the age where it's it's hitting them a little bit which is nice so i'm enjoying having them close to me where i can keep an eye on them and and them appreciating uh this so 
I'm sure. I'm sure I, just as a precocious toddler, I'm sure how that toddler's being raised will resonate with them throughout their throughout their life. Oh, if, if you're talking about am I indoctrinating him in the prairie culture? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I assume <laughs> yes. <laughs> so and he'll probably resent me, and then and then when he gets in his twenties, he'll be like, "Oh, that's really cool. I'm going to be a naturalist." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Either that, or they'll have like a, a a driveway lined with with Bradford pears. <laughs> that oh, be- shut up! No. <laughs> <laughs> so I I just finished reading your book, um, which has been on my list. It's it's just a, a busy time of the year for us, and there's a lot of things going on. So it it it. I was at a point where I think you 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 have to be ready for 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 you have to be in the right frame of thinking and be ready for it for it to to really oh, yeah. hit home. And and I was in that state. I know Tom's in that state. Mm-hmm. But one of the first things that we both marveled at was the photos of your property and the properties around your property. And we were curious wow. <laughs> if it what what your neighbors think and if you've if you've managed if any of them have taken your leads i don't want to say converted them but if any of them questioned and started to experiment on their own with that nope <laughs> <laughs> and how how long has Look, it been I, I, since you you started that well the uh the front yard which which to me actually feels like the best space right now this especially when you get, can can see the uh you know what's going on behind the front yard, which is just all manicured, perfectly green lawn for the eye as, can, as far as I can see. But I did that, and I think it was 2014 or 15 is when I I took out the lawn there. Okay. Um, but no, I get this question asked of me a lot, and I think everybody's surprised to hear my response. But you know, I I, I wish I could convert somebody. I think convert is the right word. I mean, just, just to have foundation beds that are deeper than two feet would, would, you know, overjoy my soul. Um, but yeah. no, I, I, about, about every year or two, I get a big orange sign staked into my landscape somewhere. So really, uh, you, you know, it's, I, you know, and I wonder for me, and that's not something that's even common here and you know and i know we're in the northeast and it's a little bit different we get enough rain that everything wants to become a forest if if you let it go a little Mm -hmm. bit um but you you start thinking of what your ideas of are of a garden and how they're what you used to growing up and what your family was used to and what their ancestors did and i was you know a lot of times people consider natives as weeds and we have trouble or I shouldn't say we. There are people that have trouble interpreting natives in our landscapes. I was curious what you thought about. Technically, I was thinking about it. Like, well, we're not native to here. We we brought home with us from Europe and Asia and Africa, and and uh, our ancestors brought their mentality of gardening and their you know a little piece of home as they left. Do you, do you think that has any play in in how we view natives here today, as far as even in our landscape and our gardens? Well, you know, even if I had a hosta and fern garden out front, I think people would still consider that as weedy and messy and, and all the other yeah. cliche words we have. Um, but, but, but of course, our ancestors brought over what was familiar with them, familiar practices and, and, and 
familiar viewpoints and perspectives and plants and all that stuff. I mean, who, who, who wouldn't, right? You're, you're going to this strange place where you don't speak the language and you're just trying to, you're just trying to acclimate and assimilate. But uh, you know, where our ancestors were also colonizing. So yeah. they weren't just assimilating. They were, <laughs> so there's this very complex history, right? And I think about this with my family too. I'm very well aware and, I'm going to write a book on this someday, but my, my ancestors were, were Mennonite Germans who were living in Russia, and they came over in the 1870s to Kansas and Oklahoma, and they they did the land runs into Oklahoma and the Cheyenne and Arapaho reservation land when it opened up, and they just immediately started plowing up the prairie. So that really is literally my history, and I think about it and deal with it and think, how can I practice reconciliation ecology today and try and restore what my ancestors um destroyed even if it was unknowingly you know they didn't know about the ecology they didn't know what they were doing and i'm not going to blame them but the truth is there and it's obvious and we have a responsibility to shift the conversation now in the 21st century it it was a different world back then too you know it's and we've said it on here before a lot of what was done in the past there was no indicators i don't think it was even thought what the outcome would be if anyone was thinking 100 years down the road they were just thinking about surviving right Mm -hmm. now you know and it's yeah um unfortunately we're at the point where all of those things that have happened throughout our history here in the united states are are starting to to pile (laughs) pile up i guess is the best way to say it Mm. so yeah no go ahead no it's please go ahead i'm sorry no, I really have nothing to say. Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's but the more we talk about this and and obviously there are people that are passionate about the things that we're talking about, but a lot of the a lot of the people that you can have these conversations with automatically think it's a radical or you're a hippie or a tree hugger and it's um you know, it's they're, maybe they're just not ready to see the big picture or what the effects are, or or maybe they didn't grow up that. You know, I grew up in a very suburban uh, condition. There were no woods where I grew up. Um, everything was already developed. You know, it was basically an extension of a city. It was one of the largest planned developments in the United States, and it's you know, so it took a while for me to get to that point to see certain things, um, to see that, and that, you know, I think. People have a hard time coming to terms that every organism is equal, uh, or to it's a shared place, and and the more I think about it, especially in this political climate, I, I'm wondering if people view that type of thinking as like a a a type of world socialism, and maybe they're not ready for that. Maybe it's the connotation of it. I don't know your thoughts on that. We already live in a socialist country. We just don't know it. <laughs> I don't know how political you want to get. Um, we we can uh, we can talk as as much as you want. There's no off topics on this on this there's podcast. No off topic. No. You know, I, I think it's the same thing. Thinking about our ancestors who brought over plants and experiences and, and knowledge to make themselves feel comfortable. We have. We have this idea of, of what an urban landscape looks like, and, it, and it's familiar, and we know how to manage it. We know how to live and work in it. So anything different sort of disrupts our, 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 our perspectives and our expectations and, and puts us a little off kilter. I mean, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of psychology at play here that I try and touch on in my book, especially Chapter 3. Um, 
So whenever there's something new, I mean, of, of, of course it's radical, but radical means getting down to the root. So if I'm putting in, if I'm taking out lawn in somebody's front yard and putting in a prairie garden, you're darn right that's radical. Yeah. We are getting back down to the to the root of, of the environment here and taking care of the environment as well as we are creating something beautiful even if we don't understand that concept of beauty yet, especially as far as it's beautiful for other species as well as us, at least 50-50 here. I agree. I agree. It's but it's still like you said it's radical cuz it's challenging how people live and how they think directly in a lot of respects. And and Tom and Tom was was born into a, a native plant nursery and I've been working at an uh in nurseries for almost my entire life and before I came to to Pinelands Nursery I was part of the ornamental aspect of the industry and I I I quickly learned I knew nothing about this side of the industry like it was it was almost like i left industries and changed my profession yeah and it's i'm a, I'm a member of our uh, new jersey nursing landscape association and it's so evident to me how we get to interact with different science and scientists and and experts than conventional horticulture does and uh a lot of the information contradicts itself <laughs> yeah because we have nurse, <laughs> we have nurseries in new jersey fighting invasive species bills because yeah, bill, they yeah bills to ban invasive species and we're actually getting a lot of pushback about that because they've been growing them for a hundred years and they want to keep growing they don't understand <laughs> yeah. that barberry's invasive they don't get mm-hmm. it they don't they don't see it they've been growing it forever and it's because it's challenging who they are their their livelihood yeah. um yeah. so it, so it's radical in in that respect but i think your book as in general is radical because it's it's challenging people to to see the facts and the science, mm-hmm. which I think to me it's a topic that people get emotional about and and well, yes. dismiss the science and and act on pure emotion. Well, of course we do. I do, and I, certainly in the early days of roughly formulating what was going to be this book, I was very emotional as well. Um, and that's okay. It's okay to be emotional. It's it's not okay to call other people names or, or belittle them in, in, in the act of being emotional. But mm-hmm. but being emotional is is it's totally human. It's totally natural, and it's the first step in processing and understanding and thinking more critically about a topic. So we don't have to d- dismiss being emotional. We just don't have to be you know jerks about it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's hard because you know it's. It, we talked about it on our last podcast that mm-hmm. we we find in a lot of social media groups that it it gets out of control and it, there's bullying and down talking and it's oh yeah and it's it's hard you know and I you know I know what we face sometimes I can, I you know I would imagine that you face it too with just expressing some of those views where people are just angry because they don't agree. Yeah. Um, you know that well anger is anger is one of the first steps in, in, in processing grief and that yeah. is very much what we're doing right now we're processing <laughs> environmental grief yeah yeah so. and you know we're we we try to encourage um all ends of the conversation because in the end if you have a good conversation about it that's when people's minds open up and their ears open up and and you can you have the ability to to connect in some way and you, you know, one of the things that we find is with having the conversations, people disconnect themselves from it that, you know, with the science behind it, they're easy to dismiss it. Like all the, the talk where people are like, ah, oh, climate change isn't real. Um, I don't believe it. But you, you see these things happening to us just on a local level for us here in the Northeast. Um, uh, 
we have spotted lanternfly uh, that mm-hmm. came over, and they're thriving because their their favorite food, tree of heaven, is invasive yeah. here and is all over. So they're come over and they feel at home. We've had uh, the murder bees up in uh, Washington that they're here and they thrive on honeybees, and <laughs> you know they're here and and thriving in full. There, there's a science behind why these things are happening and how they're they get out of control but i think people disconnect from it and i i know you touch on that in your book a little bit why do you think that it's do you think it's something deeper like is there i I don't know how to say it like well we've already been talking about it a little (laughs) bit it's 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 a self-protection mechanism Mm -hmm. from from experiencing too much reality and having overload especially when it's when it's overload that can make you be afraid or feel feel some level of grief or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's this, there, there's this, ingra- I mean, it, it's a very primal force that's going on in our mind, right? That's saying, oh, no, I need to deny this because it's just totally freaking me out and stabilizing, <laughs> stabilizing my worldview. And that's totally, again, that's totally natural, just like being emotional. Well, s- since you've, you've published the book and I, I know you, you do speaking engagements are, are you, over time, have you become better received? I know it's hard sometimes when you're doing speaking engagements because a lot of times your book and you know the audience is going to be receptive to what you're talking about right. based on the engagement. But have you seen a change since since the book has been published? Maybe not so much via speaking engagements because I certainly am almost always preaching to the choir. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I presented – at events where it's more landscape and nursery professionals, and then it's, it's not so much the choir, it's more the status quo. Um, but I think I've noticed, maybe just in general, a, a change. I, I'm an introvert, so I'm at home 99,000% of the time. <laughs> um, so, so most of my social interaction is, is online and yeah. via social media. And actually, I mean, this is where this book came from, from conversations and just you know, incredibly intense arguments with people, with nursery professionals and designers and, and all these folks over the years. That's where the book, book came from. But even online, I've noticed there's sort of a, I, I don't really want to paint a dichotomy here, but it's what yeah. humans do. It's how we make sense of the world. We, we see things black and white, but we sort of have this, we have the Pete, we have the Pete out all side and we have the Doug Colony side. Mm-hmm. And and they're both they're both the two sides of the same coin. There's yeah. there's, there's a lot of mixing and matching. But I, you know, maybe back around 2015, like you know, a lot of the Aldolf people were like, Ptolemy's an idiot," and all the Ptolemy people are like, "Well, Aldolf just doesn't get it." <laughs> and 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 now and now you're starting to see these people sort of you know the, these ideas are starting to fuse and come together and intermingle a little bit more. And I definitely noticed that. Uh, among more vocal proponents of both of these perspectives and, and especially among professionals. So one, that's sort of encouraging. It is. Mm-hmm. You know, I, actually, one of the things that I noticed that I mentioned to Tom is that some of the works uh, that you mentioned in your book towards the end were they're getting better at integrating uh, human and, and wildness together are are companies that I don't necessarily associate with that type of work, (laughs) you know, and it's, I was like, Oh, I, I know this one company was, you know, very famously known for full drafts of just one plant, you know, and it's to see even those design companies change their way of thinking to approach works like that is very encouraging. 
Yeah, it's very encouraging now, but you know, that's still the tip of the iceberg, right? We need to be getting what, you know, the 95% of landscapers that are out there, the, the suburban mow and blow um, companies who just put, you know, a 20 yards of mulch out there and three daylilies mm-hmm. and call it a day. Yeah, and it's, you know, having come from the other side of the industry, I understand some of their arguments too because it's um, – people are, are very quick to defend selections or varieties. And, and I – over the years, I've done it myself um, having sold street trees and you think of all these harsh urban environments um, in the Northeast mm-hmm. and New York City and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., the average life of a street tree is six to seven years old. and Chicago, it's four years and you can argue that – that plants don't have time to evolve or adapt. They need to be urban tolerant now. And, you know, but if you think about it, you're just really putting a bandaid on all the, all these things. You're not really fixing the problem that's, that's killing these trees. Mm -hmm. You're just coming up with a solution to prolong the inevitable. Um, And I don't know. Well, sure. I mean, we we certainly need to be addressing climate change now, (laughs) but we're not. Um, we can keep breeding trees that are more urban urban tolerant, but you're right, it's just a Band-Aid. And I know a lot of people think I'm just this super strict native plant purist. And, well, oh, hell, I am. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, there are, always, there, are, there are always caveats. There are always gray areas. And so when you think about cultivars and hybrids and selections or whatever, I, I, I think, especially when you're thinking street trees, you, you know, you Maybe you can't put a baroque in downtown Chicago. Yeah. So let's let's find something else that's fine because it is going to be serving other important purposes um, besides being a host plant for Lepidoptera. So yeah, you know it's you know I I worked for for two nurseries between the two of them that probably held more patents on varieties and selections <laughs> than the rest of the nursery industry. I worked for Princeton <laughs> Nurseries and Star Roses. Um, you know, and it's funny, even you look back through the, the history of Star Roses, that nursery was founded on the on two facts that people are passionate about roses, but they're short-lived, and they'll when they die, they'll buy more. And yeah. if you keep coming out with new varieties, they'll buy them mm-hmm. all. Um, and that was the main philosophy of, of the starting point of that nursery. So it's what the conversations that we're having are directly challenging ways of life and, and people's income streams. So I can understand why they would get emotional and defend oh, it. Ab- ab- absolutely. I mean, it's the same sort of larger global conversation we're having right now about capitalism and, and, and how it's literally killing not just ecosystems, but people. So I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's all very related. So I guess, I guess my next question is, and one of the things is, you know, I think people believe that to nature, a lot of people think that no one should experience suffering. So even though we have a connection with nature, as you mentioned in your book, we're kind of scared of it and it can be a harsh environment. You kind of disconnect yourself a little bit or you keep it at arm's length. So um, we're, we're, we're still afraid of it. So what do you think people can do a starting point to bridge that gap? What's, what's a good first step to, to get people moving in that direction? Oh my God, that's a hard question. <laughs> just uh, one step. It's not. How, how do we? I didn't. I didn't ask you to solve it. I just asked you to to point someone in the right direction. I don't know how to point someone in the right direction because there are so many directions to go into. I mean, yeah. I, I'm like, well, maybe you need to read some Buddhist and Taoist thought because <laughs> that's, that's sort of where I'm coming from a little bit here. Yeah. Um, suffering. Suffering is part of the world, and of course, we don't want to suffer. I mean, I this. 
this will maybe seem banal to some people, but I, I lost my cat of 19 years two months ago, and I'm still incredibly suffering. It's incredibly painful. It's like when I lose a family member, yeah. a close family member. Um, but I have found that if I do not embrace that pain, if I don't work through it, I'm prolonging it and making it worse down the line. So I always tell people, and I think I say this in the book somewhere too, you know, um, wh- let your heart break, foster your heart breaking, because that. That, that shows how much empathy and compassion you have for yourself, for others, other humans, other birds, or you know, birds and all that stuff. So um, let your heart be broken and know that's a testament of, of your faith and, and your compassion. And that's, that's really – that's a huge step for, I think – Obviously, you didn't you didn't make that leap overnight. That that comes in time. No, no, no. You, you know, yes. and it's. Um, but that's a great step. I think that's what hopefully everyone strives towards. You would you would hope. You know, I because I think we we see nature as observers and not participants uh, a lot of the time. Or you know, it's it's something you can change. Um, you know, it's actually it, it was funny because one of the conversations Tom and I just had yesterday was. As a human, you know, you want to think on a higher level and do things that help nature or other other species. But not every species thinks about everyone else when they're interacting in nature. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I guess, yeah, That's the conversation true. was um, like a, a wolf isn't considering the welfare or well-being of uh, – of the, it's the, the deer, yeah. the prey, whatever it's going after, it's not thinking about everything else. It's just not thinking about what benefits itself. And uh, I don't even remember why we were talking about. I, I don't either. But <laughs> it was a good friend. But it was something we were talking about. <laughs> but it's 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 challenging to. At what point do you do you think above that, or do you think you know above your interaction? Like it's mm-hmm. we're trying to say is is sometimes can it be too much? Like can you yeah. do too much i don't know i i we i maybe we were over analyzing this but that's a good conversation to have oh no you can't over analyze no, <laughs> no, no, no. but i mean like no, if, uh, if, if you're doing too much is it just as harmful i mean i i'm gonna say no right now because we have so far to go yeah, to even yeah. get to half that right yeah so I, when you're talking about a wolf not not considering what they're doing in the ecosystem well of course they're not i mean mm-hmm. you can't i hope you're not comparing that to humans because <laughs> we have a very we have a very special place here and a very special responsibility and that should strengthen us and give us mm-hmm. hope well you know it's funny because you even mentioned in your book about you know we we still have things that we do like we we turn on the air conditioning we we do certain things that maybe you would think you know we drive cars you know maybe you can make those choices a little smarter but you know we still are going to log we're still going to uh, you know there's certain practices that we take for granted from nature Mm. that i don't think will ever change because maybe we need those to survive yeah, and and I'm going to step back a little bit just because it, it's got the crawl on my side when people say, "Oh, you you're this you're this tree hugging hippie." Actually, I don't <laughs> hug trees; I burn them. I live in the prairie. <laughs> um, but uh, they, you know, so they say, "Well, I bet you drive a car." I'm like, "Well, of course I do. What else am I going to drive?" Yeah. You know, my my decision to drive my car less is not going to save the environment. Mm-hmm. I need to be I need to be working to change the the larger industrial capitalist society so that we don't have to rely on cars so we have high-speed rail so we have 
you know, so we just mm-hmm. change things on this bigger scale because me driving less isn't going to change anything. It might make me feel better, but it's not really going to mm-hmm. add up to more than one one thousandth of a percent. No, I agree. You have to you have to foster something that either a makes everyone drive less uh, or like a smarter way, like better better transit or or b you you find ways to make people work from home. Like I really feel like once we're done with the COVID nineteen, things are going to change drastically. I don't think there is any going back to normal. Everyone's finding a new way to do business and they're, they're finding there's better ways. <laughs> and it's, mm. you know, it, it, maybe that's like a small silver lining in, in all the, the bad things that are going on is that it may make us do things smarter as we move forward. So, so Ben, I want to, I want to take us probably way back and um, right. your mindset today. Well, it wasn't always your mindset. What, uh, what made you start to think like this and even so much that you wanted to write a book about it? But it, it originally started, you know, when we bought this house back in 2007, it was, it was a new house, totally blank slate. And I just I told my wife, I just wanted to go nuts and have a garden. You know, 1500 square feet was absolutely nuts for me at that time. Cause I, I didn't have more than maybe 50 square feet ever in wow. my life. I grew I grew up with a mom who gardened, garden like crazy she was always outside probably escaping her family but that's what we do <laughs> um so i was just getting any plant at the nursery that 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 uh, the tag said would would take clay soil uh, and full sun conditions and i happened to pick up you know a swamp milkweed because it had a butterfly symbol on it i'm like oh yeah i'd like to have butterflies in the garden that sounds cool i really didn't know what i was doing um and then i saw caterpillars eating the leaves and i'm like oh my god God, that's a fifteen dollar plant. It's almost totally defoliated. <laughs> you know, I'm halfway back from the from the garage with some sort of nasty chemical in my hand and I say, you know what? I'm a little bit more curious about this. And I went inside and Googled and and you know, down the rabbit hole you go, right? And yeah. you start thinking about your plants in different ways. These are ecosystem services. They are providing home and habitat for others and it, it it's just not cool. I mean, it's not only cool, it's it's really liberating to your thinking when you start start gardening in this way and I, I always tell people just just plant a smooth aster or a new england aster and and watch it in the fall just mm. sit out there for 20 minutes and watch it you will you will be changed forever seeing what comes to that plant to, to get to get pollen and nectar yeah oh it's, yeah and it's at a time of year where it's really important too you're getting towards the end of the year and mm-hmm. i hit home i you know, here at the nursery, when we started producing for seed um, seed sales and some of the first fields, like Minarda punctata, like blew everyone's mind when that was in yeah. bloom, and you saw the pollinators that it attracted like nonstop. It was just, I think, I think that was a real eye opener for everyone to to see that, just the interaction. I, I will. I will sometimes have people, even at conferences today, ask me, you know, I've, I've got this plant and it's got lots of leaf damage. What is there anything I can, what, is, what, what can I do to control the leaf damage? And I say, man, I want your plant to be 100% defoliated. Are you kidding? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not the answer they're expecting, yeah. I don't think. So, so what, how long did it take you to com- uh, completely transform your yard um, from just that? 1500 square feet to to everything oh i'm still working on it man i think i still got a couple hundred square feet of lawn so um i see it started in 07 with 1500 and i probably got about five or six thousand now so wow 
Wow. And has how you've yeah. been been gardening changed over that, what's that, 15-year oh. span? Uh, I can't do math either. Yes. Yeah. That, yeah, that, was, totally. that was not the right amount of years. I just nodded. I'm like, yeah. I'm not even going to correct you. Long time since high school calculus. <laughs> yes, the way I garden has, has certainly changed, and it's certainly changed um, in part because of how I'm working with clients and doing their landscapes. But when I started... You know, I was I was buying one gallon pots and just and just putting them in the in the ground, and I wasn't thinking so much about plant communities and how plants are working together above and below ground, how they fit together in these ecological niches and and the wildlife they're supporting. But I, I was also doing it in a very expensive way. You know, if you buy a one gallon pot and you know, if you buy two hundred of them to fill a space, you know, my God, you're bankrupt. You got to take out a third mortgage. <laughs> um, so. So I definitely definitely switched to a combination of using uh, plugs and seeding um, as 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 a way to put a landscape together. So uh, I, you know, even even in my backyard, I've got I had two thousand square feet of fescue lawn, and I neglected it, so it was getting patchy and brown. I just scalped it one year, put a couple hundred plugs in, overseeded it, and now I've got a meadow. I you know I'm a big fan of the plug. You know, just as a nurseryman, you know, the smaller the plant, the quicker the transplant. You know, and it's oh, yeah. Uh, it, yeah. It, it it takes really well. I'm a big fan of you can get mm-hmm. way more bang for your buck going small. Uh, by the end of the year, they're all they're all pretty close. Yeah, to yeah especially with herbaceous yeah. plants, yeah. they seem yeah. to really mm-hmm. take off. Exactly. Quickly. You know, for us here, the only issue is when you deal small. You're you're dealing with such huge deer populations yeah. that yeah. sometimes mm-hmm. they you, you have to go quantity mm-hmm. to such large numbers to make it through. So, it, so when you're uh, transforming your yard at what point did you get to where you're like you know what i really need to write a book so other people can, can learn about this too no that's that, that's not how it worked at all man. <laughs> because, I mean, this, book, this book is not this book is not a how to right this book is a this book is very much a philosophical why yeah. and it's, it's and a coming of age earlier you gotta yeah i mean you I, I've had people tell me, you know, after they read a, a chapter, they got to like put it down for a couple of days and just try and process it mm-hmm. and soak it in because it's just it's just so heavy. Okay. Um, and I'll so even say that wasn't so much when when Fran so, was reading yeah. the book. That's what he would come the in. And he's first, like, you know, I read like twenty pages, and I was like, I just couldn't read anymore. <laughs> I needed to just stop <laughs> and process and do it again. I, and I'm a fast reader, so I started reading it. Uh, what's it Saturday? I'm like, I'll be done by the time we we have this interview. And uh, <laughs> but no, Fran was right. I would get like ten pages. And I'm like, man, that's a lot to process and it, just it really was. Just think about I, it. There were there were nights where literally I read five pages and had to put it down and and just yeah. think about it. So which is. That's good. That's good. That's very good. Well, and, and and I think I think part of the issue too is I I I have a creative writing degrees in writing poetry, so I'm okay. kind of like, you know, I'm, always, I'm just thinking thirty lines at a time, right? That's how my brain works. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it it grabs a hold of you. It wasn't, you know, and you know this. It wasn't just like you read through it real quick and you're like, okay, no, mm-hmm. it really makes you stop yeah. and think and process, mm-hmm. which I really enjoyed about mm-hmm. that. And th- like I said, this is something that we do for a living and we know the benefits and it still mm-hmm. made me think of things in a way that I hadn't thought of them before. That is so good to hear. It yeah. makes me feel good. So the um, as you do this with your, your yard, do you find it easier over the years to find native plant material of local ecotype like where you buy plants? 
oh, local eagle type, you had to throw that qualifier in, didn't you? Jeez. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Uh, but that's important. That's it. That's. I mean, no, it it, it is, and it, it's it's not hard for me as a garden designer to find native plants because I have relationships with wholesalers. So mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's not an issue. But and we do have a new local native plant nursery that just started up, and they're they're trying to use as many um, local eagle type seeds as they can, but. The local eagle type is really hard to find, and it's also significantly more expensive as mm-hmm. it probably yeah. should be. Yeah. So I can't come to I can't go to a client and say, "Hey, we can do this job for ten thousand dollars." But if you want to what really be environmental about it, we can make it twenty thousand dollars. Know, what are they going to go for? Yeah, you, you know, I think there's a lot of obstacles with it because garden centers really it's it's not the heyday of the garden center anymore. Uh, they really fight no. uh, uh, the big the big mass mass chains so it's you know those mass chains don't even pay for the material until someone scans it at the register so if it sits in their lot for six months they're not paying for it they had no investment a lot of the times the nurseries will actually go and care for the plants at the chains so you know garden centers are trying to compete and they don't necessarily you have to have a a very educated staff to explain to someone why the summer suite that is native isn't pruned as nicely as the one that's ruby spice and it's a variety and you know because not everyone is educated or there yet so they don't have the time or the the resources to do that and i think it's just easier for them to not do it (laughs) and and you're right and it's more expensive because you're going out you're collecting local seed you're you're propagating it you're you're doing all that so it's there's a lot of challenges um to do that so you really have to think look hard to find those those local ecotype plants native plants and and you have touched on something with nurseries, and I, I am certainly an outsider. I do not know anything uh, nearly as much as you guys do, but it, it just seems to me as sort of a nursery outsider that, that nurseries really need to find a way to almost become more niche or, or pivot mm-hmm. in some different way because the t- traditional model is not working. Am I wrong? No, it's it's changed. And, you know, even after the last recession, the, the large nurseries weren't able to make it through. So, like, even the day of, like, the, the – huge large nursery is is over um and it it really is like you know we've been fortunate that we have a niche that's that's native plants but everyone's trying to look for their their niche to survive of of a corner of the market they can fulfill you know and you know amp up what's unique about them instead of adding what's Mm -hmm. commonplace you know which is which is easy to do but it's um yeah, is it? It's, well, <laughs> well it's, it, it's it's easy to add what's commonplace, not not not. Okay, yeah, but gotcha. That's, okay, yeah. but you know, it's 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 hard, and I think it's I think more people have to speak up that that's the material that they're looking for, and I think those numbers are getting larger over time. Like we're we're definitely seeing it. Well, and then I, I always hear the argument too. Sometimes when I'm, when I'm speaking at conferences and talking with with nursery and landscape professionals afterwards, they, they say it's a, it's all about it's all about market demand. What mm-hmm. it, what it, what are consumers asking for? And I'm like, well, if you're not educating them, I, I don't know. I just I just feel this great great disconnect. I'm not saying you have to convert them to native plants, mm-hmm. but it, it's not just about consumerism for from this that that viewpoint to me. No, I agree because it, it if if everyone's asking for for DDT because it works, <laughs> yeah. you know that doesn't mean ethically you sell it to them because that's what they want. You know, it's it's an education process, but mm-hmm. education is is costly and it's it's all part of a process. But if you can change the thinking yeah. and and have people work that way over time, you hope that 
that you can change it. So it's, I, I think your book is very revolutionary because you're challenging people's way of thinking, not just here's the science and this is why you should do it. It's really, you you really go through <laughs> like all the stages of grief and, and all the arguments against it. So it's, in, in a way, it's a very challenging book. And I, I'm curious over time, have you had a negative response at all from someone that's read it that's like, wow, this is way too much or this is Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm I, I'm just a I'm a total idiot and I don't get it, but <laughs> it, 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 I, I no, I I have definitely made a lot of I I probably made a lot of people more angry and pissed off than I know, but my dad always says it's better to be pissed off than pissed on, so that's sort of the logic I go with. I, I had somebody once tell me my book is like a hand grenade you throw in the room and just see what happens. And that's always, that's, but that's always how I taught. I, I, I taught in college for 15 or so years, and I would, I would always bring in these really tough subjects, these tough perspectives into the classroom. I'd just have my students debate it for an hour in front of each other. And they always started out angry and emotional and just wanting to hit each other. And then by the end, we, you know, we were all, well, we weren't all hugging, but, you know, we had all understood each other's perspectives and found out there was a, a lot of, a lot more common ground than, than, than we realized. And I think over the years that I've been presenting at conferences, I found a lot more common ground even than, than I thought was going to be there. So that's been wonderful. That That is wonderful. One of the things... You, there were a lot of quotes I found myself highlighting in your book, mm. and it was it was it was kind of fun to to read it on Kindle and see what the most popular highlighted yeah. <laughs> passages were. That's I really enjoy. I don't know if you, have you ever done that to go. I've never done that. No, that sounds neat. Yeah, if you go through Kindle, it will tell you how many times a passage has been highlighted. So, huh. which I thought was really I didn't even know that was a a thing. So, um, but one of the passages that I highlighted was if our landscapes all look the same from state to state and country to country using the same plants in the same way then we lose our sense of self place and compassion for our community as a whole and i wasn't the only person that highlighted that one and i realized while reading it and and enjoying your perspective um i'd never seen a prairie in in my life and i've i've traveled and that's not something i've ever experienced and i take for granted as a new jersey resident um, that not everyone's seen a salt marsh or the ocean yeah. um, or sand dunes or even uh, pine barrens. And it, it kind of – that became a reality for me here when we get phone calls from people saying, oh, I'm in trouble with the DEP because I bought this beachfront house and I removed the dunes and the vegetation because it was blocking my view yeah. of the ocean. <laughs> you know, not realizing that that's the thing that's saving them from, mm -hmm. from hurricanes and storms. Um, yeah, yeah. And they're just not aware of – of what it is so how important do you feel it's it is for everyone to explore experience in, in other ecotypes than where you live i i think it might have to be along the lines of you know it, it, it's important to travel to other places other countries and see other cultures and get to know them a little bit because it really opens up opens up your mind and your heart a lot and you can you come back home with this new perspective and you, you're looking at your own life and a lot of powerful ways and maybe change some things so i think i i have been really really lucky that people read my book number one <laughs> number two that they email me and say hey would you come speak at our conference and then number three i get to see a bunch of these different ecosystems if even only for a day or two i was i was in new mexico 
a year or two ago. I was just blown away. It is, it is an amazing place. Mm-hmm. I want to go spend weeks there. Um, now I was in, I was in New York last year and I was totally terrified. I was in upstate <laughs> New York and there's just, there's trees everywhere. There's yeah. trees like three feet away from you. There's trees, you know, talking to you. I felt very claustrophobic. Uh, I, I need to be able to see the tornado coming from the horizon and I couldn't do that. It was, well, it was still beautiful, though. It was still yeah. beautiful. It was still gorgeous. And that was um, in Indian Lake, I think? Or I forget exactly no, what God, time. Where, I remember seeing it, it on was, your agenda. Oh, North Creek. It North was, Creek, it was yeah. North Creek. That, and that's a really, really, for listeners at home who haven't been to North Creek, New York, it's uh, it's a ways away where you're not going to find a lot of people there, but it's a really, really beautiful no. place. So. Yes. It, yeah. It's you know, and 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 I really can take away any time I've traveled if I I've got to see yeah. some of the local ecosystems. You know, one of the things I was just enjoying your perspective of what made you fall in love with Nebraska. Mm-hmm. I actually had no idea that there were saline wetlands yeah. in Nebraska. That Fran, was you great. ruined this for me. Yeah. I was gonna I was gonna put you on the spot here. <laughs> yeah, Tom's gonna debunk something <laughs> but, in one of our videos. Yeah. Go ahead. But I'm I, I'm actually gonna go back. For one second, and say, I'm going to debate your your last question, Fran, that about exploring other ecotypes okay. because I almost think we don't spend enough time exploring our own ecotype. And um, yeah. even what I was doing this morning, I said I went down to the Pine Barrens and just kind of was walking around, and I saw so many things. It's a place I've been going since I was a kid, and I'm sure I ran around, but I wasn't noticing plants at that point. And when I was walking around today, I probably haven't walked in some of those trails in like 10 years and i just noticed so many unique things that i didn't even know were there and uh yeah we, while it's good to see some of this other stuff it, you really need to examine how many people in new jersey know when they're going to atlantic city to go gamble that they're going through a really productive salt <laughs> marsh it's they don't you you're gotta right. No, you're right. enjoy some of the stuff at home too and and i'll even add that until this whole social distancing thing there's songbirds that i never noticed that i'm sure i've you know i've been living in new jersey over 20 years and i'm just hearing birds and seeing birds that i've never seen or heard before because i didn't look and i didn't listen but but anyway fran ruined my moment here (laughs) where i was going to put them on the spot so we we started a series called whiteboard ecology where we're kind of going through the idea was to have some of our guests do it when we were having them in studio but now we can't have them in studio we'd actually go and do like a micro ecology lesson on one little thing like i did one on what is a native plant which isn't really that little of a thing but we had someone talk about why succession ecological succession was important and um mm-hmm. talk about provenance and uh and it was actually when fran was talking about provenance he was saying well when you have uh a, well, i a think you were talking flag, about of course flag, right yeah and it has um it's salt tolerant on the east coast but if you took a, a plant from and i think he was just picking a random flyover state and I he's like it. oh if you took one from nebraska is it going to be salt tolerant probably and then not. reading your book we found out about the <laughs> salt marshes in nebraska so i i immediately was like oh no we have to take my video down <laughs> i look like an idiot <laughs> but can you tell us a little bit about that because it's a really unique you don't think about oh. salty conditions in the interior of the country yeah, I and I, I really should know more than I do because it's a really big deal here among ecologists and biologists. We used to have a lot more uh, saline wetlands here in Lancaster County around around the capital, Lincoln, Nebraska. But obviously, a lot of that's been been lost to development and, and agriculture. But we have uh, an endangered beetle, the Salt Creek tiger beetle, 
and we even have where our our local zoos are actually growing them and, and releasing Whoa. them oh, wow. into the in, into these places. And um, I think oh, I don't want to say too much and make myself sound like an idiot to to people who, who live nearby. I, I need to do more reading over the sailing wetlands. Um, it, it used to be a great salt, uh, source of salt um, mm-hmm. way way back when, obviously. So. You I'm know, sure that didn't help. Well, we we didn't, we were working on a project up in Syracuse, New York, and they were buying all these salt marsh plants. We're like, oh, that these are salt marsh plants. These aren't going to work. They're like, no, that's Syracuse used to be called the Salt City. <laughs> There's a lot large underlying uh, salt layer. Yeah, and, and, and it was actually groundwater uh, would kind of get pushed down and then come up, and they'd have a Onondaga Lake yeah. was uh, had salt marshes and a lot of salicornia. Yeah, is what I remember. Yeah, so it was kind of. It, it just amazes me yeah. every every day. I learn how much I don't know, it's, which is a lot. It's, it's, it's becoming well, increasingly okay, guys, a lot. Guys, get you guys need to take a road trip. Come out here. We'll look yeah. at the sand hills, and uh, you can visit see the sand hill cranes in the spring, and just, uh, have a good time. I would love that. Yeah. I would love that. How how long were you living in Nebraska before you had that realization moment? Um, that road trip that you talked about in your book. Uh, when was that road trip? Oh, oh, geez, was that 2014 or? Everything blurs together when you hit your 40s, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and especially now, right when you're stuck at home and it's the same thing day after day. Yeah. Uh, I think it was about 2014. My my, we usually go up to Minnesota over uh, the Independence Day weekend to hang out with my family. But my mom had recently had spinal surgery, so we had to cancel that last minute. So we just decided, you know, like literally two days before, hey, you know what? We've never just driven around Nebraska. Why don't we do that? And we should have done it years before because I've been living here 11 years and I really haven't oh, wow. seen much of Nebraska. So we just did a whirlwind three-day trip and just went all the way around Nebraska and saw some of the, I guess, key, keystone sites that, mm-hmm. that, that Nebraska is known for. And that was, it was really eye-opening. It, it made me realize even more fervently that I want to live by myself as a hermit in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> because if you got, you know, the sand, the sand hills are pretty sparse. That's about a quarter of the state. It, it's just sand with grass on top. So there's really, mm-hmm. there's really, you know, you can't do much with that besides doing some cattle grazing. And so there's sparse uh, farmhouses here and there and then you go way out to the west and it's starting to get rocky or you're getting close mm-hmm. to the mountains and there's all these escarpments and you will be on a road and you won't see anybody for 20 30 minutes and it's just dead silent if you stop the car pull over and and, and just just walk out there and listen that it, it's, that it's, i marvel it was, at it was very yeah I, I did too i'd never experienced something like that before i've always lived in a city you, you can get that in the pine barrens in new jersey but uh, it's you, still you get hard that, you get that feeling of being scared <laughs> i think it's it's uh it's you know there's there's certain parts of the pine barrens that seriously like you almost think that you're you're down south mm-hmm. you're you're in like uh different parts of the south you forget what country what uh, state you're in for for a while but we'll have to have you you need to come to new jersey we you know everyone thinks of the shore uh the beaches but you know northwest new jersey it's it's very mountainous Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of delaware water gap is a great place and uh we have the pine barrens there's a lot of a lot of very cool and all the the tidal infrastructure around like uh, the bays and and all that salt marshes We'll, we'll we'll trade. I, we'll come visit, yeah. and then you have to come visit. <laughs> I'll trade. I don't know. I think I'll just stay here. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, for, uh, for all the things that we've talked about, and I, you know, and it, it can be a very heavy subject, but it 
to me it's a, it's a very uplifting subject it's it's a it's a very happy subject for me of all the things that you know you can easily focus on all the things that we've done but there's a great light at the end of the tunnel where we can make a change you can you can see a difference and it, you can start in your own yard it if you could sum it up and i know it's difficult to one main point that you could instantly get across to the general public and have them walk away with it what would it be stop the lawn um, yeah. no, no. Yeah. Like, can you if, if you live on a quarter acre lot you actually have a, a lot of land that is going to be incredibly meaningful to all sorts of wildlife that are coming through either on, on wing or leg and, and they might stay for a long time or they might not but you're also setting sort of a, a precedent and, and, and an example other people are going to drive by and they might stop to slam on their brakes and glare at you evilly which happened <laughs> to me a couple of days ago but 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 you 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 you're starting you're starting this transition. It, it's the same how every social justice movement has ever been in 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 our species history. You have to start by pushing the envelope a little bit and taking the risk. And you can do that in your landscape, and it's actually a safe space. So plant that aster, plant that milkweed, rip out three thousand square foot of lawn. You'll get there eventually. It's okay. Baby steps. It, it you know, and it's it's funny because. Like the the back section of my property is all wetlands, and every every year I add some species to it and try to make it a little more diverse. It's it's almost all soft rush and lurid sedge right now, but it's, uh, you know, but a lot of people will come over and see that, and they see the snakes that it brings to the <laughs> to the to the property, yeah. or all the negative aspects, not realizing that all the the positive aspects snakes bring to the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's just a challenging perspective uh, to get everyone to, snakes, to view. Snakes, snakes, wasps. Oh, God, yeah. People, are, I don't want to have snakes. I don't want to have wasps. Yes, you do. <laughs> and by the way, you want you want that you want that tree defoliated too. Sorry. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, we before I forget, we were actually stalking your Twitter today, um, and in your Uh-oh. agenda, no, in, in, in your agenda of things that you were doing today, one of the items was writing a book. So. Are you able oh, to talk yeah. about that at all? Well, I just signed the contract this morning, so I guess I can. Oh, wow. I, I still not I still not 100% sure what the title is. Here, let me go. Um, da, 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 give me a second. I have to go find it. All right. <laughs> it, 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 well, it's something like because the title keeps changing, but in, in spring of 2022, I'll have a new book out called Prairie Up, an Introduction to Natural Garden Design. Oh, so it, it's, very, it's sort of going to be built as a very beginner-level um, approach to, to I'm, I'm just going to throw P out all's name out there again because a lot of people come to me and say I want my yard to look like that well you probably can't do that because he's doing these huge gardens mm-hmm. but if you want to do a more natural based landscape where you have these native plant communities intermingling and, and working on weed suppression doing all the wonderful things that native plant communities do then we can do that on a foundation bed and this is how we're going to do it because people are always saying I read these wonderful books by Thomas Rader and Claudia West mm-hmm. and Roy Diblick, yeah. and they are awesome books. They're awesome books, but they're like, these things, these ideas are just too big for me. I, I don't know how to actually do this in my small urban lot, and that's what Prairie Up is hopefully going to address. I love that yeah. idea. I love that. Yeah. You know, we, even though we don't deal with the general public, when we do, they, you know, they, they, they want guidance. They don't know where to start uh, when they get turned on to it, so I I love that you're giving them a place to start. Mm-hmm. We need to help. We need to help our weekend warriors because I oh, almost yeah. think the weekend warriors are at the forefront of this movement. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree, and it's it's nice 
that uh, I I don't think there's a lot of questions and 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 a lot of them are a lot of simple questions. They just need guidance. They need someone to talk to. And the fact that it's that that I I just and you mentioned the people that you mentioned do great work and and do have great books and and Tom and I are familiar mm-hmm. with them. It's just I I like the concept of where you're going with that. I'm excited. Yeah. I I can't wait for this. You just got me like well, well I'm sitting here smiling. Well, <laughs> I will see if I can pull it off, guys. I've got six months. <laughs> <laughs> you can pull it off. I have no doubt. I have no okay. doubt. <laughs> so, Tom, were you gonna? So yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a very different book than the New Garden, I think. You know, I, you know, I I love that. I love that it's a different direction. But even I, I'm still pulling things from a New Garden ethic that I hadn't thought about. We, I I, I brought up a couple things that Tom, I'm like, you know, I never thought about mm. this, or I never thought about that, and how it affects us here, even with normal business and uh it i just like that it's got me thinking mm-hmm. and that's the main thing um so if you got people thinking that and you have is, their attention yeah. that's a powerful tool that's a very big compliment you just paid a writer so thank oh, you oh you're welcome you're welcome and uh and the thing i was going <laughs> to say before is i don't think we'd said the name of the book until fran just did <laughs> a second ago so but we're uh well how can people since you mentioned the book in your garden ethic where can people find that book uh where can they buy it uh where can they see pictures of your yard yeah pictures of my yard well you you gotta start at my website right mm-hmm. monarchguard.com so it's monarchgard.com just google benjamin vote and attractive after that and you should get right <laughs> yeah. to link. Um, so yeah, my, my my book is for sale there, but may, maybe you want to support your local independent bookseller mm-hmm. too and get it through there, have them order if they don't have it. Um, that's great too. Um, so you can find me on Instagram. Um, Instagram has a lot of pretty pictures with a little bit of ranting. Twitter is massive amounts of ranting. <laughs> Just let it go. <laughs> And then, uh, and then, face, Facebook. It, it depends on my mood. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So I've got. I've got. Yeah. So it's all over. And we were actually just commenting on your your articles on who's today. Or house. 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 Sorry, yeah. house. House. Yeah. House. Yeah. And you're very accomplished on there as well, if I if I remember correctly, with the amount of. Uh, yeah, I readers. was. I was I was an almost weekly writer for about five years. I haven't mm-hmm. written for them in a couple of years now, but I'm glad that those are articles yeah. are still up there and being read and being used. Um, that it was it was a it, it was a big step for me just learning a lot about the plants and, and landscape design and and just e- even interacting with people who were leaving comments on the articles really mm-hmm. helped me rethink rethink some things. So that was good. Yeah, and I think that's how I was first introduced to you and and your ideas was actually through through house and i don't know i don't remember why i was on there but it's probably looking for something for my house and then <laughs> just happened to see find that and uh then found you and then i started following you on twitter and instagram and all this other stuff so so yeah it's so we we always save our favorite question for last and it's always the same question and, and we ask it and it's kind of evolved even as, as people have added to it or have different different likes but do you have a favorite native plant Nope. No, really can't har- can't boil it down to one. There's not one that. How did you like it? No. <laughs> it's like it's like people it's like people saying, "What is your favorite dessert?" Or you know, no, um, I I know I, my but... favorite native plant changes every day. Mm-hmm. Every day is it, it, it's a new plant. I, I guess I guess I could say Carex albicans, or I could say 
uh, I don't know. Let's just leave it at Carrick's Apple Cans right. for today, and in three hours it'll change. <laughs> well, we, we we never hold anyone yeah. to it. And, and why it's... is that your your yeah. favorite for the next three hours? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe two hours. You changed my mind. Uh, I have I have really lately been been uh, intrigued and interested in, in designing drought tolerant shade gardens in, in dry clay soil because that's certainly the well, I have a lot of clients, so I, I'll go over to their house, and they'll be like, yeah, I, I've, got, I've got deep shade, and I've got a lot of clay, so I know we can't really do anything, so let's walk out to the front yard where there's sun, and i got to grab their arm and say, whoa, come back here. <laughs> so Carrick's Albicans is just a wonderful, lovely, beautiful ground cover that, that is going to replace wood mulch applications every year, so you have this living green mulch instead, this, this sedge. Um, it's just, it looks like prairie drop seeds a little bit, but, okay. it, but it's for dry shade clay conditions and it makes a wonderful carpet uh where you can have uh uh wild geranium and columbine and the uh, early meadow root coming out of and it, it's gorgeous it's functional it's good for wildlife mm-hmm. yeah it sounds awesome mm-hmm. i'm not familiar with that one so yeah. now i know what i'm doing it's seen... native to new jersey i just saw i'm looking uh, it up right now yeah i'm not cool. i'm not yeah familiar i with think that it one. is yeah well so, yeah most of uh, most yeah, from, basically from nebraska there. east it looks like we, cool. you know, a lot, a lot of my native plants are native to you too. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes, they are. So we've also added in if, because so many people have been birders or, or, or into insects, if you want to include a favorite bird or a favorite insect, you can do that too. If you have any interest, you may not be able to pick one. Favorite insect. Yeah, any anything anything that makes it through our uh, highly industrialized uh, weed mm. spraying society and <laughs> makes it to my yard, I, I'm in love with it. <laughs> we, you know, and it's like like we were saying at, in our opener, like every episode is an eye opener for us, mm. and even just Sam Drogi uh, singing the praises of specialist bees, really. Oh yeah, y- yeah. Uh, and and their I don't want to say their plight, but their struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, once you lose, if the 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 host species for them is suffering, then then they're suffering too. And um, well, and the yes. whole the whole ecosystem suffers after that oh, too. Yeah. So exactly. Um, now Sam Sam's doing great work. I, I love the things mm. he shares online. And he he does great work, and he he says them in a great way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I I appreciate that. Right. Well, Ben, do you have any final uh, thoughts for uh, for our listeners at home? I do not. All right. All right. See, I'm really easy. You yeah, guys, you guys want something easy. really philosophical. <laughs> you, you want something deep and impactful. I mean, here, let, 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 let's do this. I'm going to read the par- last paragraph from the first chapter, and that's how we should end, okay? All right. All right. Sounds great. Do you guys know the paragraph I'm talking about on page 25 in your hymnal? <laughs> <laughs> I'm turning to it right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go, everybody. So this, this is what a new garden ethic is. So your garden is a protest. It is a place of defiant compassion. It is a space to help sustain wildlife and ecosystem function while providing an aesthetic response that moves you. Now for you, beauty isn't just petal deep, but goes down into the soil, farther down into the aquifer, and back up into the air and around, uh, for miles around on the backs and legs of insects. You don't have to see soil microbes in action, birds eating seeds, butterflies laying eggs, ants farming aphids. Just knowing it's possible in your garden thrills you. It's like faith. And it frees you to live life more authentically. 
Their garden is a protest for all the ways in which we deny our life by denying other lives. So plant some natives. Be defiantly compassionate. All right. I... You know, we have to end it that way because yeah. I'm not following yeah. that up yeah. at all. Yeah. I have no final thoughts. <laughs> Ditto. That's yeah. my final thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, with that, I want to thank everyone for joining us again. Uh, we hope you enjoyed enjoyed listening to and learning about the works of Benjamin Vogt. Uh, many of you have asked us to have him on the podcast for a long time, so we're glad we could deliver on that. Um, and again, thank you guys for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet, provided by Pinelands Nur- or presented by Pinelands Nursery. You're getting tongue-tied. That's, that's the You're tongue twister. I, it gets every me every week, time. Every week, every week. So we want, also want to thank Stephen Marr again for our theme music. Uh, a huge thank you to Benjamin Vogt. Uh, please pick up his book, uh, New Garden Ethic, mm-hmm. anywhere that uh, online or at a local store. Support local businesses and go to a, a, a local bookstore and pick it up. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery. You can follow us on Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, YouTube at Pinelands Nursery, and don't forget about our brand new uh, Native Plants yeah, Healthy Planet Facebook page. That that yeah. the group is growing, and the conversations have been minimal yeah. but good. For uh, friendly debate, friendly no debate. no attacking. I don't the, know if you heard about this. <laughs> and we're we're starting our own group, so no one can be mean to no bullying. We're not <laughs> we're not allowing any bullies. But, but uh, you're welcome to join too. So anyway, you can listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can also listen to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, YouTube, or you can just ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Make sure you follow, like, comment. Uh, leave a five-star review we appreciate all the feedback um like you said this was a listener request for this interview so if you leave it in a, a five-star review we'll take it seriously so <laughs> but uh, it wasn't a five-star review the last one too by the way yeah the request yeah. for this so so and um one last thing is we're probably as we're entering our busy season at the nursery we're probably uh and and as quarantine things are kind of loosening up we're probably going to go back to our two-week uh schedule um it's been fun doing it once a week but I love we're getting a little crazy here <laughs> i love doing it once yeah. a week but it was it was chaotic getting it ready for today yes so yeah. it, it, it's becoming difficult so so but well thank you guys again for joining us i'm tom and i am fran thanks again everyone we will see you next time until then keep it native
Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planted Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.